Golf is the best, number one. It's the GOAT of sports apps. Talk about the greatest of all time. Big Joe's the greatest of all time. He's the GOAT. We know it. <laughs> I, I'm going to say right. I'm the Djokovic of this scenario. <laughs> I love it. Love it. Download the OTB Sports app now. OTB AM. The Sports Breakfast Show from Off the Ball. Very, very good Tuesday morning to you, half past seven, and you're welcome along to OTBM, the sports breakfast show from Off the Ball, myself, Shane Hannon, and it's Johnny Ward back again. Johnny, how are things? Morning, morning. How are you keeping? Good, good. I'm uh, off to Roscommon races uh, later on. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, so I uh, might head back home afterwards. Um, Ryan Moore riding in Roscommon, fresh from riding the Derby winner. Of course. First, first time ever to ride a Roscommon, so uh, that'll be a highlight. He's... Uh, he doesn't give many interviews. He's not. He's, he's like I really like him. He's just no crap. Like he doesn't. He's he's not like a showman at all. He's completely the opposite to Frankie Dottori. Yeah. But he's. Um, I've interviewed him before, and like he's he's a good interview to get. Mm. He's just he's a nice guy. The family, they're a great family. But he probably just won't give me an interview. So we'll see how it goes. <laughs> you try your best though. I've tried Aidan O'Brien to give him a nod. Like to yeah. give him. I don't know if Aidan's going racing, but he has a runner in the big race. So we'll see. Interesting. Yeah. So you're you're quickly getting out of here afterwards and. It's over. not actually until Neve and meet. We record our LOI Central podcast after this, so it's a it's a busy day. Yeah, busy man, John. Yeah, busy man. Good. Tell you what, it's a busy man. Stephen Gerrard. Uh, we both John Duggan was was laughing in the office earlier and stuck the headphones on both of us to to uh, listen to this uh, introductory message to his new job. So he is the latest big name to move to Saudi Arabia. He signed a deal to become head coach of Al Etifak. Uh, so he's returned to management, of course, after being sacked by Villa in October. That was the last gig he had. Um, obviously Biden his time trying to wait for the right opportunity an opportunity that maybe excites him and, and uh, one that he's always wanted to get involved with and, and a team that he's been following since he was a kid and uh, that team is is Al Etifak in Saudi Arabia yeah uh, so it's an, look it's an interesting move a lot of these guys are heading and getting their big paycheck and it's uh, in one sense I guess hard to blame them but would you work in Saudi Arabia if you were offered like loads and loads of money <laughs> Maybe you would. I was going to say it's the million dollar question, but it mm. kind of is. Probably isn't get it? more actually. Yeah, you probably would. Um, Expats have gone over there for a long time, and um, it's an interesting question. Racing, t- horse racing takes place over there. Irish trainers send horses over for these. I've seen purses over there. Um, I don't know. I mean, you can also say like, well. Do you want to work for the US or a British government, considering what the US and British government have done overseas in Afghanistan and places like that? It's not black and white, but it's sad to see the role that Saudi Arabia is having in the world now. Like I was looking up their managers here, like he's 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 about a hundred to one on to get sacked because they've had like since two thousand and seventeen they've had nearly eight, ten managers. Right. Um almost all non Saudis, including Vladan Milovejevic, who he came to mind, he was the manager of Apoel, I think after Mick McCarthy. Right. And Apoel would have a similar, Milovejevic wasn't there long, Apoel, where Jack Byrne was, would have a similar penchant for turnover, yeah. Um, but it's kind of sad, Shane, like Stephen Gerrard is 43. It was 43 degrees in um, the city that he's going to live in yesterday. I looked it up to Mam, which is the east of Saudi Arabia. Mm. So they're, I don't know, they're somehow, um, these countries are almost inhospitable now beyond without air conditioning um, 
And Saudi has made all its money from oil, which is basically destroying the world that we live on. I don't know how long we even have left. Mm. And now they're oh, trying to... Johnny. Now they're trying to... Fl- it's, it's really depressing. Oh, it like, is, though, it you is. see how bad the climate is. Like It's yeah. literally crumbling in front of our eyes because of fossil fuels. And all the while, Saudi Arabia is flexing its muscles and sports washing all over the place. You so forget. like I know, I know a lot of people laugh at me on the climate, but like it's actually really depressing when you look at Saudi Arabia. Because Saudi Arabia has, has all this muscle purely because of oil wealth. That's it. Yeah. And Mohammed bin Salman... Is like a bored young dictator who wants to kind of do do stuff like set up new uh, cities and sports wash. The money that must go into even uh, keeping pitches afloat, mm. uh, so to speak, as in like the dryness of the of the the arid climate over there is is outrageous. But the um, yeah, it, it's kind of and I got to the point where we were watching that video earlier with Jared, and you're like, this feels weird, but we're almost getting used to it. Yeah, where you see a, you know someone who we all recognise and. A lot of Irish people would be familiar and love Stephen Gerrard down the years, and now you see things like this, and you're like, well, maybe for some people it doesn't change their opinion of Stephen Gerrard. For others, it will. Similarly, for Robbie Keane last week going to manage uh, Tel Aviv in, in Israel, God, yeah, which is worse. So, like, but it's 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 almost getting to the point now where we're kind of we're used to it. But well, look at the players that have been immediately linked with the club, and um, this club isn't owned in theory, I think, by the Saudi government fund. Yeah. Um, which brings to mind, and I still, I mean, I really should do an article on this, which would be, be an interesting article to write. What happened to Saudi takeover of Galway United? Because we were basically first. Yeah. Galway yeah. United was like one of the first, and I don't think it was so much a sports washing exercise. I think it was maybe to do with getting players over to Europe. But this had, this was voted on by the people of Galway United, and we were told that it wasn't the Saudi government. But I mean, these lads, their stadium that Stephen Gerrard is going to is named after some royalty. So I presume, I don't know, I don't know if there's any separation from the Saudi government and Saudi Arabia in general. Um, and Stephen Gerrard probably didn't have that many good options in, in England, I'd say. Um, yeah. And in fairness, if you are to judge Stephen Gerrard, then judge all the you know thousands of Irish expats who've worked in Saudi as well. If you're a ex-Liverpool fan, let us know in the comments this morning on the YouTube. Uh, do you care that he's taken over a team in Saudi Arabia? Does it affect your opinion of him? Same with Robbie Keane. Johnny, we have a special treat. A very special treat on this Tuesday. Though, to be speaking again. of climate change. Speaking of it. So for the last year or so, I mean, most of my messages on Twitter have been no Sheehan, no party. Where's Owen Sheehan? Bring back Owen Sheehan. Uh, we get it every morning in the YouTube comments. Get about John Rogers. Where's Owen Sheehan? Exactly. And understandably so. Popular cult figure, you might even say. Um, a genius. A wordsmith, a poet, a Kerry man. Like Mohammed bin Salman there for a minute. He's, yeah. he's everything. This man, Owen Sheehan, is everything to us. And we, we do miss him dearly. He's never been on the show. He sent in a couple of messages, you know, little birthday messages or goodbye messages. Well, he seems to be on a bus, like, in transit. He's always like, somewhere. I mean, following him on Instagram has been a journey in itself. It has. In love itself. Um, but we have a very special treat for OTBM fans this morning. Because for the first time since he left this building, Owen Sheehan is coming into us live at 1.36am local time from a hostel somewhere, I'm told, in Peru. Owen Sheehan, good morning, good night. Good morning. That that much is very much true. It's funny, Shane, because my Twitter mentions are often filled with this uh, new, taller, more handsome, uh, this guy with a nicer voice than you is doing a much better job than you in OTBAM. So Who was that? Obviously, the internet is just full of hate, uh, Shane, and... Uh, Johnny Ward bingo is already complete. Six minutes into the show, climate change, Galway United, uh, and uh, racing. Uh, tick tick tick. F off and back to Peru. Like, Jesus. It just yeah. feels warm to be here. And do you know what? I'm always on a bus because if I came on this show, having said that I took a single flight over the last two or three months, Johnny Ward would have me cancelled immediately. So uh, well, you can guarantee I have. Yeah, you can guarantee. Yeah, you can guarantee. Johnny, how are you? You are great. 
sorry, say that again. How are you? Uh, sorry, just one more time. How am I? What? How are you? <laughs> How am I? Deep oh, philosophical I'm, I'm question. Well. Sorry, John. There's a, a bit of a bit of a delay there. I'm I'm very very well. Thank you very much. Uh, as Shane says, uh, I'm here in a in a dark hostel room. Uh, my face barely illuminating there, but I can barely see. But uh, I have the place to myself. They've obviously cleared the decks for OTBAM here in this room tonight. They knew that there was uh, star power like uh, Johnny Ward and Shane Hannon coming into the room, so they, they had to clear everybody else out of here. But very very well indeed. And uh, big congratulations, Shane, on uh, Monaghan's win at the weekend. Big times ahead. I know you spared your visit to Crow Park at the weekend. Of course. We've got two more big ones yet to come before the summer is out. Yeah, kind of, you know, we're getting so confident now. We went into the minor final and now they're into the, into the senior semi-final as well. I just said, you know, there's no point. We're, we're not a quarter-final team anymore. Although the, uh, the the power rankings, the Tommy Rooney now uh, power rankings have been uh, have been a touchy subject for Man and fans. We were ninth last mm-hmm. week, Owen, even though there were only eight teams left. We'll find out later on this morning around 8 o'clock <laughs> where, uh, where we'll be. The, we're probably down to 10th, I'd say, after qualifying <laughs> the semi-finals. Um, so the, comment, the comments are rolling in. Owen, I did say to you before the show as well, like... It, it, it's going to be a Monaghan Kerry final, isn't it? Like that's what we're all waiting for here. It is just you know the the classical of football is what people are waiting for. Given uh, the both sides of the draw at this point, people are looking at those two fixtures and tantalisingly looking in the mirror and saying, "I want uh, I want the big one, Monaghan and Kerry," and it is a big one. Yeah, that's that's what everyone wants. We've got the comments, Owen, uh, absolutely rolling in. Where is Owen? We've answered that. He's in a, he's in a hostel somewhere <laughs> in Peru. We're not going to reveal exactly where. Uh, Rubner says we need him back to bring up the show's quality. Can he replace Shane? <laughs> this is the, this is the general theme Owen this morning. So we've got Owen Yabaya says Dave McLean. Uh, what is an expat? That's another deep philosophical question for us this morning. Um, Owen, you're you're be, you're missed here. Uh, have you missed us as much as we've missed you? Miss you deeply. Miss you deeply. Whoever you are, who's who that person? <laughs> a lot of random guy. Uh, Dave McLean. We've got Rubnert. Uh, all, some of your old friends from the comments. Just, just, uh, I guess, bouncing back in this morning once they saw your face. You actually look, you look refreshed for a man who's been on the road for, for quite some time. I'm absolutely not refreshed. I'm, I'm broken and broke <laughs> and whatever sort of uh, image you're getting off uh, the screen this morning is a complete another lie. Could yeah, I, I don't, I don't, I don't think you look fresh on to be honest. I think you look absolutely wrecked. Uh, it's half one in the morning. You've been traveling on buses for several months. Have you found yourself though? This is the whole thing about these traveling expeditions. There we go. I mean, it, you, you talk about Johnny Ward bingo. It was going to be Owen, Owen Sheehan bingo. He's, he's in a hostel somewhere in Peru. If the line wasn't going to freeze at least once. We'd have been going. Why? Why didn't it freeze? With all due know? respect to Peru and all that. With like, respect to Peru, um, we got you back. He's going, back. Now we can we can see you, of course, but we can't uh, we can't currently hear you. But I mean, it looks great to just even see you. Owen, to be honest, like uh, we could sit here. I think the OTBM fans right now would just be just quite happy. To, the quality of the show. I, I know you can hear us right now, but it's um, it's bringing up the quality of the show. Just looking at him, you know, having him on screen. It's bringing up the quality of my life just looking at you guys. <laughs> like, uh, right, right back at you. Uh, uh, if that's what we were saying this morning. Someone says in the comments, Jim Sweeney says, I want to spend enough time finding himself. It's time to go home. Someone says, <laughs> uh, someone says uh, has Owen booked his hotel for the All-Ireland Finals, says Shane? I, I, like, listen, I have a flight booked home for the last weekend in July, <laughs> which happens to be the week leading into the 30th of July. 
it's just a, like I, I don't know what's on that weekend, but mm. I just happened to book that flight back in February, March, whenever it was, and uh, that that's when I when I when I touched down on Irish soil. If there was anything happening that weekend. That is, that is the most Kerry thing ever, isn't it? The confidence, come back for the final. borderline cockiness, like to book your flight for that for that weekend to probably land into Dublin Airport maybe three or four hours before throwing mm. bounce over to Jones. Actually, Road. Com- completely bypassing Dublin. Actually, flying straight into straight into Kerry Airport. Uh, <laughs> we we do have an airport of our own. I mean, I I do not need to go to Dublin anymore. Could be up and down in the one day. Were there to be an All Ireland final for Kerry and. I probably booked this flight the day after Mayo hockeyed Kerry, not only in the championship, but in the league in Castlebar this year as well. Mm. So, uh, I mean, again, there's no connection whatsoever. I just want to be home for August. That's yes. it. There is no connection whatsoever to whatever might be happening in the last week of July. How many, tri- how many countries have you visited? I'm not, I'm not sure. Maybe, maybe 10 or 12. I, I'm, I'm not, I'm not entirely sure off the top of my head, Johnny. Sorry. I should, I should have come prepared, but, uh, a few. But they're they're big countries, so maybe like ten or twelve doesn't seem like an impressive number. Uh, Jojo, of course, works on sound with us here. Um, he had said this morning when he was testing your line that you look great. You look, he said, you look older and more mature, uh, like in a, in a good sense, of course. And then he's also saying that uh, your look reminds him of one of the actors in Narcos, <laughs> which I think, which which I think is one actor a compliment, <laughs> but not Pablo Escobar. Right, right. <laughs> I mean, you know, uh, wait, wait to stereotype South America there, Jojo. I mean, uh, just, 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 just show the, the narco tag there in straight away. But, but thank you very much. I, I'll take that as a compliment. I'm definitely looking older. That's for sure. That is one thing that is absolutely <laughs> undeniable at this point. Jojo, of course, is from South America. He's so from Brazil. He's so kind he's of, he's kind to of What's the four, What were the football matches you visited been like? Uh, brilliant. Brilliant. Yeah, absolutely amazing. Like the, the, the best atmosphere, in my opinion that I visited was uh, Neil's Old Boys in Rosario. Mm. I, I was at a, a Boca game, actually, the night before, the very night before um, a Neil's Old Boys game. And may- maybe deep down, I'm just a hipster who wants to be a little bit different. But I, I much more preferred the experience uh, in Rosario at a Neil's game and seeing something a little bit um, off the beaten path. It's not off the beaten path. I mean, they're like a global club, like uh, the two most famous Argentinian players of all time are associated with Neil's. They're not a hipster club whatsoever. However, the pocket thing is uh, pretty well blown up. It's not, not overly touristy, but it's pretty touristy. So to, to be one of the only non-Rosario uh, natives in the home section and at a Newell's game is pretty special because that, that is a, a, an incredible theatre sport, the, the Bielsa Stadium. And I'm sure you guys saw recently the, the free kick that Messi nailed in there at the, at the Raquel mm-hmm. May testimonial, uh, I think, two weekends ago. Uh, it's a special place, and, and that for me was, was, was probably the highlight. Uh, a top-tier football, but... I'm also a sucker for um, average grassroots football as well, and uh, there, there was a particular experience in, in Belize, which was which was very entertaining and very funny, and uh, it was like a junior BGA match at home, and it made me feel all fuzzy and warm inside going to a Belize Premier League game. So, two ends of the spectrum there, I think. I have to ask you seriously, like, what's it like travelling for that length of time? Uh, it, like, it, it's. It <laughs> It's like I'm, I'm an unbelievably privileged person to be able to do this. So that that's like the the first thing. Like you do feel an unbelievable sense of I'm incredibly lucky to do this above all else, and you feel like such a a spoiled brat whenever you complain about it whatsoever. And the only complaints you do have are just uh, tiredness and and maybe the the amazing things becoming a little bit less amazing after a while because it becomes your routine very quickly. Um, like the the, the first 
two months of being in Latin America are obviously insane. Everything is so vibrant. And the vibrancy settings get turned down because it essentially becomes your home. And this life becomes your normal life. And as I say, the vibrancy settings get turned down a little bit. And uh, you, you get three months in and, and you feel like a complete spoiled brat, as I say, because you start to think to yourself, how do I refine the, the excitement once again? So after a while, Johnny, it just becomes about trying to do different things, trying to travel in a different way that um, makes things a little bit more exciting, um, which sounds terrible when I say it out loud, given we are some of the most lucky people on earth that we, that we are able to do this. People who are from Europe, who are from North America, who, uh, who are in a wage that, that gives people the, the ability to do this. The amount of people I've met out here, uh, people who would be earning a good wage for their country, who find it obscene that we have the ability to go to a different continent for a year. Um, uh, you, you couldn't count the, those, those conversations in two hands, that's for sure. And it just reminds you of, of how lucky we are. So, has it radicalized you? Uh, <laughs> radic- not radicalized in, in, in any sense. I'm just, I'm just uh, I'm maybe, maybe a, when you say, what's it like? And, and you ask me for like one main emotion from it. I think it's, I think it's a smaller humbling is, is the, the main emotion from it. But then again, I'm completely flaked emotionally at, at this point. I'm on the way home. Uh, so. Ask me again in two, three months, and uh, I might have a more rational answer for you. See, that's why we asked you to do it at one forty-six a.m. your time because we, we thought we might get a few tears <laughs> and philosophical kind of ram- like ramblings. That was certainly not a rambling. That was eloquent to to a T, and and probably answers the question: Did Owen Sheehan find himself in South America? I like, think he did. No. Yeah. Oh no, he didn't. I, I think you have. I've not like I I I found myself a long time ago. <laughs> this is, uh, this is, I'm, I'm just here. I'm just existing, guys, and like that. That's, that's what I'm supposed to say, right? That is profound. Yeah, yeah. That yeah. is pretty profound. Yeah, thank you, John. It's, uh, I, I exist, asks, therefore I am. There you yeah. go. Connor asks, uh, what, has been, <laughs> <laughs> what has been your favourite country, Owen? Argentina. No Ooh. question about it. No, no uh, delay there. From perfect, no delay whatsoever. Far from perfect country in, in, in many, many ways. That, that, that probably is part of the appeal, uh, to be honest. Uh, an absolutely uh, incredible place. And um, it's, a, it's a conflicting place right now for a tourist economically it's a it's a very very lucrative place to be uh you get double your money when you're transferring your your dollars or euros into argentinian pesos right now the flip side is that of that is that you're seeing serious economical uh economic suffering on uh, at the hands of um or just 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 on the, on the streets and and in the lives of every argentinian and uh in the middle of this 10-year chaos of inflation they just want to work up <laughs> mm. so it's uh it's, it's very very conflict in society and uh to me, that's something that fascinates me. So uh, you throw in all the, the natural resources they have and all, all the incredible things that they have on, on the doorstep as well. There is not a question in my mind that, that Argentina was the highlight. It, 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 is, it is mad. Like, I remember Owen being in, I think it was in, in Cambodia or somewhere like that, and I was haggling with a fellow over, like, 50 cents or a dollar, and I just was thinking back, like, what are you doing? You're an absolute asshole here. Like, you have, like, you might have five or six grand to spend on this trip, and you're haggling over a dollar with somebody for whom it means something. Yeah. Yeah, a hundred percent. And to be fair, there, there are definitely uh, travelers who uh, try and do this on on the extreme cheap. And I, I can completely see their point of view. A, a dollar doesn't make a make a difference on their end. But but for me, with Argentina, the crazy thing is that as a tourist, you're literally getting a benefit that the locals don't get. Like they are earning Argentinian pesos, which is one of the most invaluable currencies in the world. And to them, dollars and euros are the most valuable thing in the world. And we are able to enjoy a steak, for example, for half the price that they would be able to enjoy it for. And mm-hmm. yet it is their country. That's mad. It, it is. It's, it, it's, it's horrible when you think about it. 
but at the same time, do we just not go to Argentina? Do we just not do we just do we just not play by the rules that that would benefit us? It's uh, it, it, it's a very very conflicting thing, and um, that adds to the fascination. So if you if you come back like obviously broke from this holiday and you were offered like shitloads oh, of money to go to Saudi Arabia, would you go? Oh, I've got a deal already signed. Uh, <laughs> Stephen Gerrard TV is coming to a Saudi Arabian television station near you, and uh, I am new, your new host. Off the ball, Riyadh, uh, starring Owen Sheehan. Um, we're getting loads of comments, Owen. Um, Argentina because he pretends he's Alexis McAllister's cousin. You, did, you, you, were, on a, you were on a hunt for uh, Alexis' family, weren't you? Yeah, like, I, I don't know how much to give away here, but there were, like, I have been like recording a bit of content, and there will be stuff coming out over the, the next few months. I did spend, it's a bit of a spoiler, but I did spend a, a bit of time with the McAllister family. Oh, wow. Quite, yeah. how, quite, quite how that actually happened, I do want to hold back, because the way in which this situation developed was <laughs> probably the most bonkers thing that's ever happened in my life. The way in which this, uh, this meeting manifested itself is, is crazy. Um, I, 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 like, I, I'll happily come and re- reveal it all if the content that produces absolute dog shit, but, I'm confident that I'll be able to put together something that represents the story quite well. If you just want to keep the powder dry on this a little bit, I do want to tell the story in a, in a way that, that does it justice because for me it was, it was crazy to be having coffee with Alexis Metallica's uncle. And he's like, I guarantee you, if Graham Potter has gone from Chelsea, he's going to Liverpool. And sure enough, he's a, he's a Liverpool player right now. But, um, I think, I think the story deserves to be told in a better way than me yet. 151 a.m. here <laughs> trying to, to recount it all. Owen keeping the powder dry uh, for uh, what'll be a big deal. A big deal, I think. I think <laughs> this is going to be big. <laughs> big. Big Saudi Arabian podcast network near you. <laughs> yeah. Have people said to you like you don't look Irish at all, or ah, uh, the most Irish? Look- <laughs> He's pretty Irish. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Johnny, come on! <laughs> I am Owen from Kerry. I'm, I'm red. I've got red hair, and I'm not Irish. Uh, we've got loads, loads still flying in here, Owen. Uh, good to see you, Owen. Surely one of the two star guest announcements for the podcast show in the Cork Opera House in August is Michael O'Brien. Uh, watch this space. I don't know the answer to that question. You'll have to get on to the the head on shows about that one. Um, nice to see you, Owen again. Rosario was beautiful. Uh, good man, Owen, spreading the far and four loves of Stephen McCarthy. Has, has that been difficult watching the, the Kerry matches? I, I, a rake of Kerry games have been on GA Go across the summer, so I, I guess at least uh, Wi-Fi depending, you've been able to watch some of the matches. Yeah, like I mean, as I, I think as Dion Fanning made the point in the Sunday papers uh, on Sunday, uh, watching via GA Go for people outside of the country has never been an issue. In fact, it's been a it's been handy to have GA Go available when you've been abroad compared to say what it would have been five or six years ago so uh, for me I've been kind of a little bit separate to that conversation and it's obviously been a debate that's been raging wildly but I completely get the the, the, the sort of anger that's existed in Kerry with another game behind a paywall at the weekend one thing I would say is that every game has at least been available with the exception of the Kerry Loud game and I include all of the league games mm-hmm. I've managed to watch every single game albeit not live very often due to time difference they're getting stuck in various places but uh, every single game Barrett Kerry versus Loud has been available on GEA Go or TG Cahar and I've been able to, to see every single game um, so it, it hasn't been too bad from my perspective but uh, I, I definitely understand that there's some there's some unhappy people in Kerry who are, who are living in Kerry right now with having to shell out all that money over the course of the summer 
I, I spent like I think seven or eight weeks in New York when I was 15 and uh, my cousin's mother uh, she's passed away since lovely lo- lovely old lady she just kept me the Irish Independent she'd pick it up at like one of the stands where you could get like the foreign newspapers and that meant the world to me and I came I, I remember watching Michael Collins that summer and I had no interest in any of that stuff but I watched Michael Collins and I came back with this like deep love of Ireland will you come back on like are you, does absence make you love Ireland more I mean, like, you're telling me that I found myself and now you're asking me these profound questions. Like, this, this is your guy's fault, not, not my, not my fault here. But yes, absolutely, Johnny. Like, you just, um, our country has a lot of problems, uh, a lot of significant problems. And there, there's a lot of people who live in Australia and who live elsewhere as a result of those problems. There's no question about it. But you do get talking to people who talk about Ireland being on their travel bucket list or people who had it on their bucket list visited and had an unbelievable time. We have an amazing country, an absolutely unbelievable country, and I'm I'm more acutely aware of that than ever. It may not be running the most perfect way, and it may not be achieving its potential 100%, but in terms of its natural resources, its people, and, and what it is as a country, it's obviously, and it's more obvious to me right now, uh, what an amazing place it is. I'm, it's obviously more profound right now because, I mean, it's GA season, and like when you see... Kerry fans cheering an absolute annihilation of Throne. You just have this filled up energy of FOMO that I just want to be in Pro Park and, and be there. So you're, you're catching me at a vulnerable time here, Johnny, and I know exactly what you're doing. He does, he does. He's trying to wrench that emotional, uh, I guess, wring it out of you as much as we can at this time in the morning for you. But it, it is that thing, it's that juxtaposition between how mental some of these countries are, but also how beautiful they are, and the people, and the food, and the culture, and everything else. And it's that as well. It probably makes you appreciate the things we have here but much it's more. Breakfast time back home, in the this, words of this, Richard Cooper. You this know? is exactly it. <laughs> like my, bro- my brother went to, like he was one of these people who's emigrated to Australia in the last couple the of months. The big man's coming back already, isn't he? Well, if he's, he said, if Monaghan, <laughs> if Monaghan beat Dublin in the semi-finals, he's booking, he's booking a flight. Like he's, he's coming home. He's currently in Thailand. I think he's flying to Vietnam today. Maybe <laughs> he was not even going to make it as far as Australia. And he'll yeah, be no, back for the game. Exactly. But he's, it's one of those things where he's been sending back videos in pubs in Bangkok at like two, two, 2 or 3 in the morning watching Monaghan beat Kildare or beat Armagh on penalties and the place just erupting and like him and all his Monaghan mates just freaking out just it, it is that thing Owen isn't it like you feel so much more connected nearly to probably to Kerry as well because of the distance and like sport is such an amazing mechanism with which we use to connect with our own country other people have other ways of doing it but, but sport I believe is the most effective way of doing it. And it's not just an Irish thing. Like there was a, a couple of boys I met in Bolivia who had like in passing said, if Carlisle gets to the League Two playoff final, we'll fly home. And I was like, well, that's obviously a yeah. hilarious joke there, boys. Uh, well done and all that. And uh, sure enough, they get to the final. I look at their Instagram story. They're in Cancun, a billion miles away from Bolivia. I'm like, they're only going one way. And sure enough, they show up on television on Sky as Carlisle win the, the League Two playoff final. Like, one of their mates is playing in the game. And I'm sure that's the same with your brother, Shane. Like, yeah. I think he's joking, but is he really joking? And, that, like, I, I couldn't blame him at all if he's too home for, for, for such a, a once-in-a-lifetime thing. I'm not writing Monaghan off next year or the year after, but if Monaghan were to beat Dublin, I mean, it, it, it is close to a once-in-a-lifetime thing. And mm. it's uh, it's strange how more acute uh, your association is with a sports team when you're a bit away from it. And that is probably saying something for me, given how uh, 
stupidly and sickeningly biased I've always been towards Kerry even when sitting in that studio oh never never I don't think anyone thought that Owen I mean, never uh, yeah, thank you, there was never thank any you. cuteness coming from you at all uh, whatsoever sure. but uh, there's uh, Bobby Dwyer who you've probably missed I'm sure as well from the YouTube comments Bobby how are you <laughs> he says uh, I'm no GEA fan but I'd listen to Owen talk about anything now they're missing that much absence makes us love Owen more um, we should have Owen interviewing on Shane on like how your stint has gone since he left you know for the next few the months. largest shoes I've ever had to fill yeah, well, this and I have bigger feet probably than Owen. You have. We've, ne- we've never actually measured. Metaphorically. Metaphorically. Yeah. Well, physically, but metaphorically, Owen's yeah. shoes were, were certainly... The, the boy done all right, Owen, anyway. <laughs> I'd, r- I'd rather have bigger physical feet than metaphorically. <laughs> Thank you very much for... Uh, it's like always sunny in Philadelphia. You know the Uncle Jack who has the big hands and wants to let everyone know he has big hands. Yeah. Like, do, do you actually... Do you want Shane to do well or do you want him to bomb? Like, be honest. <laughs> It's too late now. Absolutely He's about to come not. home. <laughs> Ab- absolutely not. Uh, that, that, like um, I, I, I uh, would argue, the the little snippets of uh, OTB end of the scene. Some snippets have gone more viral than others. Some have. Uh, I think. I think. Shane, I think Shane has done a, a magnificent job. So, it's been an interesting. It's been uh, interesting. Uh, yeah. Some of the interviews have been quite interesting. Actually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> One or two people no, saw them. I'm not sure. Why, I'm not sure not sure what you're talking about there no not a clue not a clue uh, have you <laughs> have you learned or, or you're probably fluent in Spanish now by this stage Owen are you well I, I came out here with not much and it's it's okay now to be fair I can definitely uh, I can definitely have a conversation uh, in Spanish and um, that's that's definitely better than, than what it was before I came out yeah what's uh, any phrases interesting phrases like how, like how could you how could you play down Kerry's chances of winning <laughs> Sam in Spanish uh, I think Yera in English is Yera in Spanish, so <laughs> thankfully that, that one translates pretty clearly. So there's no translation either. That's interesting. Like, has yeah. the um, you, you were kind of famed and still are famed for your for your food reviews, for your uh, Japanese delicacies at the Rugby World Cup in 2019, and and other trips as well. Like, how has the delicacy and wine and beer experience been? Like, I guess it differs from country to country. It does. It does. It's been excellent. I think that the beer experience has. Uh, by and large, been outstanding. Uh, the wine experience in uh, Argentina was obviously brilliant. That didn't really sh- shed out that much on wine in other countries, so I can't really speak. In terms of the food experience here in Peru, it's absolutely amazing. Argentina is absolutely amazing. Mexico is amazing. Everywhere else was was uh, pretty average. Colombia was terrible. Wow. Love, love the country. Love mm-hmm. the country. Terrible food. Terrible native food, I must say. Um, everything that they do, Peru just do a lot better. Same with Bolivia. Um yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's been good. I'm, I'm an unfussy consumer of, uh, of foodstuffs, but, uh, Peru, Argentina joined top of the food, food chain. Let's, let's go with that. Even, even ahead of Mexico. What's the cost of your current accommodation? <laughs> the current, <laughs> uh, well, uh, believe it or not, actually, I'm, I, I've, I've got a, uh, a free night here in this bigger hostel. This, this hostel I'm staying in, Johnny. So zero. Uh, it's called, it's a zero euro, but but it's a it's a special case. This hostel is called uh, the Wild Rover. So as you can imagine, there's a, a bit of an Irish influence to this hostel. Uh, there is a, a number of Tipperary men who run uh, the chain of Wild Rovers. They're uh, notoriously party hostel, and uh, if you are a, a little bit um, uncultured, you te- you tend to go or not necessarily broke. They're quite they're not necessarily cheap, but if you're particularly uncultured, you would go to the Wild Rover. And uh, if you if uh, that, that's very. That that sounds very very harsh when I say it like that. It's it's a it's a a place where you will meet other English speakers. Let's put it mm-hmm. like that. It's a, it's very European hostel. It's a, then there's an Irish pub in the middle of all of them. Basically, as an Irishman, you're going to an Irish pub to stay in it. 
And if you manage to stay in all of those hostels, you get a free night in the final hostel. So let's just say I've got a free night in this hostel, which means I have managed to complete the royal flush of staying in Wild Rover hostels. I haven't gone for your local Peruvian who uh, runs a, a very authentic hostel. I've, I've just gone for the Irish option where, where, it, where it's been available over the last couple of weeks. I think but I promise I've been a proper tour at the other stages. To paraphrase um, Homer Simpson, I think Owen Sheehan should walk out of here a free hostel. There we go. <laughs> completed it, mate. He's completed that the, the Wild Rover hostels. That's insane. That, um, that's some achievement. Oh, well, listen. Being a Wild before. Rover from any a hostel, like. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's not bad. Yeah, 4 for 4 Lads from Tipperary have, uh, have set it up. So, um, yeah, met, met them in back in La Paz in Bolivia, uh, where, where one of them, where they have an institution as well. And uh, they're, they're good people. And um, they're, they're, they are great hostels, to be fair. I don't know why I feel uh, feel ashamed to admit that I've been in all of them, but it's a fact. Owen is an institution. There you go. He is an institution, and and look, it's um, I guess that um, I, they're, they're obviously they're obviously fans of the show, Owen. They must have been these temporary lads. If you're getting the free night as well, they're, they must have been familiar with you and your story. I, I think I, I think it's a it's a very uh, undiscriminatory process. You either stay in all of them or you don't. <laughs> right, fair. Don't about any. Yeah. Uh, before we let you go, Owen, uh, I know Tommy is listening in uh, ahead of the the. Tommy Rooney power rankings. I don't know how that makes you feel, uh, but he's, he's standing by in the next couple of minutes to to, to uh, join us. But um, I assume when you come back, and that's maybe a spoiler for some people. If you come back, when you come back in the next couple of months, um, mm. you're going to be coming in heavy-handed, grabbing that mantle of of leader of the power rankings immediately. But the thing about the power rankings is that they don't have any leaders. They they are objectively and one hundred percent correct all of the time all it takes is a presenter like I've, I've seen some statistical nerds on Twitter trying to justify the power rankings which is uh, which is quite hilarious given they need no justification whatsoever as we've always said they are 100% authentic correct completely flawless it doesn't matter who's in charge of them they are completely correct mm. by the way I see that we're what three minutes past eight back home I thought we were coming on for a chat about Kerry's greatness and we've uh, wasted half an hour chatting about my travels, which is uh, a, a complete waste of everybody's time I would have thought. I thought you were looking for some incisive game of games analysis. But, never never wasted, uh, never wasted. I just wanted to make the point that, uh, of course, you, you should come back in and take the mantle. And look, excuse my language uh, at this time of the morning, but the, the crappy quiz has gone to shit as well without without your presence. So we need you back for that reason also. But um, on, on Kerry, Owen, explain to us where they should be in the power rankings at this particular Coin Kerry, Kenny Cunningham, at this particular moment in time, and uh, uh, where are they in the grand scheme of things? Well, they're number one. I mean, they're All Ireland champions, and they are in a rich vein of form. Quite how big the difference is between them and Dublin is unclear, but it is very, very clear that there are two teams at the top of the pile in Kerry and Dublin, and I think we will all admit, including you, Shane, that it would take a hell of a surprise for that not to be the mm-hmm. final. I will say this, it'll take less of a surprise for Derry to be Kerry than it would for Monaghan to be Dublin. And again, I apologise to you on, on behalf of that. But I, I think Dublin beating Tyrone is... I, I would I would be very, very surprised if there are any non-biased pundits who will be predicting a Monaghan win over Dublin mm. that weekend. There might be a couple of rogue pundits who could see Derry doing a job over Kerry, and I think that probably speaks to the fact that Derry will cause Kerry problems. I think Dublin would have had a much easier time against Derry. I think they've got a much greater bank of experience of breaking down that sort of defence. I think Kerry probably still have a little bit of a point to prove on that front, given they beat 
Mayo and Galway and Dublin last year during the summer, teams that are more relatively open than, than Derry. So they've got a bit to go in terms of proving themselves in that regard. But I think they will. And I think we will have a Kerry versus Dublin final. I think Kerry are the number one team in the country. But if you're asking me to predict the All-Ireland at the start of the year, I would have predicted Dublin. Dublin were the team. I think I actually said it the week Kerry won the All-Ireland last year. I think Kerry would struggle to do back-to-back All-Irelands. And I, and I think I actually predicted Dublin on the show to win the All-Ireland the following year. I didn't expect to be in a position to be watching Dublin 12 months later where Jack McCaffrey and Kieran Kilkenny are being sprung from the bench. Mm. That bench is terrifying. And people will go back all the time and they'll probably stop doing this after the Tyrone game. But anyway, for the last month, people have been looking at that Killarney performance where Mayo eviscerated Kerry. People now think that all those questions have been answered about Kerry. There is still one big question mark about Kerry and it is the squad depth that they have this year. They lost Joe O'Connor to a, se- a season-long injury. He would have been the big breakout star for Kerry this year. And he's been a massive loss. And that could tell by the end of the year. Using Jack Savage for the year, uh, who, who walked away, was was obviously a big deal as well. And I think that squad depth could be crucial in a in an All-Ireland final or in an All-Ireland semi-final where Kerry have to go 75 minutes with the game level pegging, for example. Yeah. Uh, listen, Owen, we've, we've given you way over time. Uh, six minutes past two local time in, in Peru. Enjoy that semi-final against Derry. Enjoy the All-Ireland final, uh, potentially against Dublin, or of course Monaghan, uh, when you just happen to be coming home on that weekend by complete coincidence and chance. Uh, Owen, it's been a privilege, an honour. The commenters are still going to comment in for the next uh, the next while. We could have spoken for another hour and a half, but uh, an absolute joy. Thanks for hopping on tonight, this morning. The joy is all mine. Thank you very much, lads. Brilliant stuff. The great Owen Sheehan joining us live for the first time. He hasn't found himself at all. He's exactly he has. the same. I think he has. I no, think he, he hasn't. Has. There's, there's an element. But as he says, he probably found himself long before, uh, yeah. which is fair. We'll get Tommy Rooney's reaction to that as a chat with Owen as well. But uh, before we do, six minutes past eight on this morning's OTB AM, the sports breakfast show from Off the Ball. Brayburn Coffee is the official coffee partner of OTB. Brayburn Coffee is coming to an Apple Green near you. New Brayburn locations are popping up every month. So visit applegreenstores.com forward slash Brayburn to find your nearest Brayburn Coffee experience. After these ads, it is. Tommy Rooney's power rankings. So many critics, these pundits. Generally speaking, I'd be a fan of off the ball. Exactly. And like Tommy knows his football, obviously, listening to football pod the odd time. And I was looking at the power rankings and I thought that Jesus Owen must still be feeling the effects of these mushrooms. But they just dismissed you like, you, you know, you have nothing to do with the bloody occasion. Eight minutes past eight on this Tuesday morning, though, to BM. It is Tommy Rooney's power rankings. Tommy Rooney, come in. Morning, Shane. Morning, Johnny. Have you wiped away your tears listening to, to Owen Sheehan live, live there for the first time since he's left us? I mean, it was quite emotional for us. How did you feel about it? No tears, no emotion, but there's no surprise that his first appearance of the year came after that Tyrone performance on Saturday. The heat is on. A um, couple of people are in touch after Monaghan's fantastic win on penalties against Armagh, saying that they'd made a mockery of the power rankings. That was just untrue. Um, you made a mistake there at the start, Shane. You declared them as my power rankings, Tommy Rooney's power rankings. They are, in fact, the official, the only real Gaelic football power rankings. Ooh. There's no ownership of them. They just are what they are. It is what it is. Okay. Um, yeah, because I know you've been getting a lot of getting a lot of hate. And oh, look, Owen had to deal hey, with that hate hey, for hey. a long time. I wouldn't say it's hate. No, not I'd here. Disagreement. Uh, potentially, um, people are very blind bias. Yeah, blind bias. People are very point. protective of their counties. I think is something you'd have been aware of before, but I think you'll be more aware of now. Look, where are Mead? Seventeenth. <laughs> Seventeenth. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It is what it is. He's very defiant there. He's like he's like listening to Owen Sheehan has just um, turned him into like a fairly belligerent, abrasive Tommy Rooney. 
that's what happens when you, when you take the power rankings over I think it, it, the personality change happens slowly but then it mm. clicks into gear like a dictator like starts it, off kind of well and just becomes a, I look at there we go who produced who produced the power rankings for, for five years before I presented them Oh, there you know, we go. Who was it? Tommy was it? It was Tommy. Oh, was Tommy. Tommy's been Tommy's been the he's been the shepherd behind all of this. So like he's been the one whispering in Owen's ear to say say that say that say this. Do you know? So technically, it's been Tommy Rooney's power rankings for for quite some time. We just did not no. didn't know it. No, no, no. It's the official Gaelic football power rankings. The official Gaelic football power rankings. We'll get into it, Tommy. The first two pages. I mean, we can probably rifle through them. I don't even know if we need to, but uh, no. unchanged, obviously. As you were, yeah. The the one of note again once more is Mead in seventeenth, down in sixteenth. I think on form maybe they deserve to be a little higher, just on reflection. A couple of counties there that finished off the end of the round robin series obviously had difficult years, but they're two different competitions. And I think whoever wins the Talchin Cup will end up being the sixteenth best team in the country, and that's just where it's going to be at. Down ahead of it at this stage. Moving on, um, and our movement, Monaghan last week. Held on to the ninth position, but Cork have slid back to ninth this week. They were look at they were unlucky at the weekend. I do think Cork are rising. I think they're coming, um, and I think ninth is a fair reflection of where they finished. They finished middle of the road in Division Two. They lost to Clare and Munster, and then, then the work that Kevin Walsh and John Cleary had started last year. The work that Kevin Walsh has brought um, since he came to the board this year started to come to fruition. I give you a good staff in the weekend. Came from the Irish Examiner. 33 shots Cork took at the weekend. Sorry, 33 attacks, 22 shots, nine scores. Mm, not good enough. Fairly paltry. Not a good return. They had no, they had no real left-footed shooter. Um, James Dunn, who said at the weekend, and he's been, it's James Dunn who's Cork. Mm. Whatever you say about Tommy Ernie's power rankings, it's James Dunn who's Cork. If they had a Kitog, he reckons they would have beaten Derry at the weekend. So, um, now, look, at Shane McGuigan missed that penalty. He had a poor day in front of the posts. Um, Connor Doherty scored that brilliant goal and then kind of went a bit loose with the shooting afterwards as well. So Derry left a lot behind them too. But look, at Cork have got the athleticism and they're on the rise. Um, I think ninth is a fair summation of where they're at. I'm basing Tommy a bit on the game, on the, just the weekend games, but like, I, I think Kerry are going to open up Derry handy enough. Um, I think I think what we saw with Derry, yeah, look at it. After the weekend, it, it's probably a fair fair thing to say, Johnny, yeah. But I just think that Derry are going to cause Kerry a lot more issues than Tyrone did. Um, like, Tyrone wilted at the weekend. And, like, there has been a... What am I going to say? Backbone issue in Tyrone. There has probably has been. Like, the, the consistency hasn't been there in Tyrone. And, like... People are saying Kerry out to run them. Like Kerry set the terms of engagement on Saturday. They were the aggressors. Like Potty Clifford and Myler, like Myler gave Potty as good as he got and they both sent off at the end. But like Potty won that battle this time. Like mm. the last time Myler shaded an epic battle. Potty had a really big influence throughout the game. Sorry. But Myler in extra time obviously um had a couple of big plays as well. And Myler won that day, they won the All Ireland. Kerry were the aggressors the last day. Like Darren McCurry really didn't get on it. The two Canavans had two moments apiece really the two great scores apiece but like they couldn't get into the game uh, Kilpatrick and Kennedy had had an awesome years they were bullied by O'Connor and Barry um, Adrian Splann had a big game like Kerry did the the bullying that day and I don't think Derry will wilt as much um, I also am sure Derry have the panel still to, to get past the team like Kerry in the form that they showed us the last day so um, yeah I think it's going to be a lot tighter 
Uh, I think defensively they'll probably cause Kerry some issues. But like Marco Shea said to us a good while ago on the football pod, he said he's always worried about a player who has an off day mm-hmm. um, when he's marking them the next day because great players don't have bad days twice. And I'm not saying David Clifford had a bad day because he had that remarkable moment, but he was one from nine from his shots from play in Crow Park last Saturday. Mm. Um, so I'd be expecting Shane McGuigan There'll be, there'll be a lot of pressure on and David Clifford they both have good games the next day yeah you'd imagine so and, and, that's, and if Clifford has a good game you know yeah Kerry are probably gonna it's win. hard to see Kerry doing and the, the, the point about Derry's strength and depth or lack thereof compared to teams like Kerry in Dublin is probably a fair one like they've been they've been excellent this year again Derry to retain an Ulster title is not an easy thing to do um, but as John Cleary the Cork manager said after the game at the weekend like Cork's middle eight is quite getting on in years and, and it just kind of suited Derry and the game petered out maybe uh, kind of, you even just saw like the Rory Maguire goal just before the Doherty goal. I mean, Cork scored the goal. All of a sudden, they're back in the game, but then they kind of not lose the heads, but didn't exactly get back in position and let Derry in for that goal. I felt very, very easily, maybe. Yeah, yeah, and we kind of saw that on a couple of occasions at the weekend. Like we saw, and I think do you know what could have played a factor there. It could have been the the, the week on week on week, the three games in a row that some of the preliminary winners have played like when they didn't top their group and we've learned that and it's a new calendar this year and we definitely didn't see Cork apply the same press that they did to the Squeezers Common or to beat Mayo so they were definitely lacking energy but like we saw it a couple times the weekend like it was funny Infus Morris in the Dublin um, Mayo game he he's raving about Mayo kicking the ball and 45 seconds later, he's like, look what happens when you kick the ball. And as he's saying it, Davy Byrne throws his left boot at that ball and it drops into Cody Beskell's hands. Reen O'Neill kicks that wonder score and Crow Park goes nuts. I actually think Ethan Rafferty nailing them with that, that kind of punch to the chest showed that maybe Armas switched off for a few seconds mm. and they allowed Monaghan to get that one last chance. And somehow, somehow, it was criminal how Conor McManus <laughs> Conor McManus was allowed to receive the ball yeah. like this is inter-county football this is the All-Ireland quarter-final like it's not nice to say it but like Conor McManus should have been kept out of the game like. mm. there's no way Manzi should have got his hands on the ball there there was no hope in hell that the Dublin team of 2017 would allow that kick out to get out like do you remember the scene where Mayo had brought it back to a point and David Clark has the ball and they're they're trying. Or Dublin had just taken the lead to go point up. David Clark puts the ball in the tee, and four Dublin players dragged down four Mayo players. There could have been more, but that's all we could see on TV. Actually, the referee didn't know who to black card. He didn't know who to book. It was pure chaos. And Clark's kick out, I think, goes over the sideline. And like we saw it at the weekend, Cork scored that goal. Fifty-four seconds later, Connor Darty steps inside, dummies, bang, back of the net. For fifty-four seconds, Cork had a chance, gone. Armagh were in the All Ireland semi-finals again. For 20 seconds, they couldn't stop an attack. Monaghan got it. And Mayo, on top, in great form. Dublin killed them 20 seconds later. So I think what we saw there was the culmination of the fact that some teams that are at this stage aren't the finished package yet. Because that's just not good enough at junior club level, never matter senior inter-county level to concede a score like that immediately after going on the, on, the yeah. fo- on the front foot you need ruthlessness you need dark arts and no, I guess we can't accuse Armagh of not uh, engaging in the dark arts over the last number of years but yeah that, that little, those little moments of being ice cool in the head like Conor McManus was or like Monaghan generally were in the last play Armagh maybe need a little bit of that and we've seen that they haven't got to a semi-final in so long like oh I, like <sighs> I think our man, the clutch moments too, Shane, have been unbelievable. Like, look at Reen O'Neill. Like, talk, talk about yeah, a clutch last player. Yeah, last year against Galway, yeah. 
the free against Galway, like the, the point from play. I like that was. Do you remember Kenny O'Connor's equaliser in in the it was the sixteen final yeah. where where Aiden kind of slips to him and he's fifty yards out and he steps one way and he steps the other way and he puts it just about over the bar. Mm. Like Green's point was absolutely awesome, but like. McManus. Like, I don't think Armagh's problem is in the clutch moment. I think Armagh's problem was early on in the game. They didn't bury Monaghan. They had their chances early on. They didn't take them. They kept they kept the game as a score-for-score score game. They didn't put the foot in the throat. Armagh played a little bit of fear. And uh, it's hard to blame them. They've come so close. The, the lines are so fine. But they allowed Monaghan to set the terms of engagement, just like Roscommon did against Mayo and Connacht a couple of months ago. They allowed Monaghan to set the terms of engagement. And once they did that, they were in bother. Well, Tommy, you've, you've brought up Monaghan. I have to say I'm extremely nervous because infamously, in, a, in an eight-horse race with only eight teams left in the All-Ireland Championship, Monaghan were ninth well, in last week's well, power rankings. Sorry, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I'm nervous because I'm, I'm a, like, I haven't looked at it. I, I'm a, I, I know that there are only four, four teams left at this stage of the championship. But where do you want Monaghan to be? So you, you well, do, you've you've drawn against Armagh, who I, I think um, are, are probably lucky to be in the position. We've, that they we've got yeah. to know you've our, drawn against Armagh, who are probably the better team over the. But over Galway the drew with Armagh last year in the quarterfinal. And, and Galway were much the better team. Yeah, like yeah. Galway's Galway's position in the power, power rankings is far far uh, more of an indictment of the power rankings than Monaghan's. Let's be honest. <laughs> well, 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 let's look. We'll, well, not, do you want to get it? Sorry, don't, don't, go on, Tom. We won't go. We won't go to the final page. Johnny, that's probably a fair point. That's a Thanks, fair point Tommy. from Johnny. Before we get there, so uh, it sounds to me like you've seen the power rankings. Shane, I want to know where you think Monaghan should be. Uh, bear in mind, as Johnny said, Vinnie Corey said at the weekend, we didn't win that match. We won a penalty shootout. Exactly. Yeah, but the, but you do whatever it takes to get over the line in, in an All-Ireland quarterfinal. And I'm by the way, penalties are a skill as well. I made this point so, yesterday. It's nothing to do with the power rankings. Like they, it's they, nothing to they, do with that. They were inferior I, against Armagh over the course of the game, and you think they should be in the top four. I, no, I think if, if it, the top four this, this year, at this current state, I think if, if, if uh, Monaghan qualify for an All-Ireland quarterfinal and they're ninth in the power rankings, and then if they qualify for a semi-final and they're not in the top four, you're asking me where I think they should be. That answers your question. Okay. Then oh, I think go, it makes a mockery. One question for you. 2020. Where would you have put Tip and Cavan in the power rankings? Exactly. Well, you see, that that was different because... Let me explain. So no, t- no, no, that no, was a COVID year. There was, there was a, a, you went straight from the provincial, straight through to the semi-final. Monaghan this year have, have had a chance to play other teams in different groups. They drew with Derry in their group, in Derry with 14 men for a large portion of that game. They, they beat Clare with a 123 scoreline and, and did really well. They beat, Kildare, they beat Kildare away from home. And again, that a lot of people were right. Neutral venue. Neutral venue, but uh, Kildare got to choose that venue. And then they got past our man in the Ireland quarterfinal by hook or by crook, by experience, by Carl O'Connell, Conor McCarthy, all these lads who are guaranteed all-stars in my book. So it's totally different to Tipping Cavan in 2020, in my view. They've, they've had more games, they've had more no, opportunities I, I to show. I didn't ask you to They beat Tyrone and Oma as well. I asked you where do you think Cavan and Tip should have been in 2020? Well, that year, not in the top four. Not in the top four, in my, in, probably in my view. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think getting to the semi-finals guarantees a top four in the power rankings, but the nature of the year as a whole, I think, and, and Monaghan's year as a whole this year has been... That's been unbelievable. Pretty good. They've been an unbelievable clutch team, 100%, and they've been absolutely remarkable, and I actually feel I've been too soft where I put them now. Okay, well, we're about to, about to get into They're fifth. Yeah, yeah show, us top, show us the top. Oh. And I actually think, I actually think this is absolute madness. Like I've been soft here. I actually feel like I've messed up. Yeah, Monaghan are fifth. Go, like, do you know what? Just, no, sorry, do you know what? Up the screen again, there, lads. Sorry, Galway are like this. Uh, okay, it's not an exact science, but Galway 
where do you expect them to be? Fifth? They should be, they're lucky to be in the top eight. Galway are behind Derry, Monaghan and Armagh, even though they're better than all three and probably Mayo well, as well. But then again, we haven't had that, we haven't had a great year. Yeah, Johnny, look, I think Park Joyce would say it himself. Yeah, like, he did. You know, like that, that's, that's where you, and you're looking at that and you're looking at Galway and you're looking at Armagh. I couldn't put Monaghan behind Armagh. Do, do you actually yeah. think Monaghan should be in the top four here? Like, Monaghan are, Pound for pound, lucky to be in the top six or seven. They've qualified for another All Ireland. They, they drew against Armagh, who are nowhere near. They're not asses roar of All Ireland cha- cha- challengers. Like. They got past. How can you not be an All Ireland challenger when you're in the last? Armagh, Armagh, Armagh wouldn't wouldn't wipe the floor with Kerry or Dublin at the moment. They would not wipe the floor with them. They're nowhere near them. Armagh beat Galway the week before Monaghan drew with them and beat them on penalties. Yeah, that was a mess for game. Galway didn't play well. But Armagh are not All Ireland contenders. Like and Monaghan, Armagh would Armagh wouldn't be in the top four if they'd won on penalties at the weekend. Exactly. If, Mar- if Armagh had beaten Monaghan by seven or eight points, Armagh would be in the top four. But like, th- this is the way this is the way it, it, it falls, Shane. Like, topping the group is so important, and it's shown what the makeup of this has been. Galway and Mayo messed up on the last day of the year. If Galway had held on against Armagh, if Aidan O'Shea had even put that ball over the bar against Cork, and they ended up second in the group, I think we'd be looking at a very different All Ireland semi final at the minute. Like, I think Kerry could have been on a little bit of bother if they'd finished second and had to play a Premier League round quarter final. But Kerry have their rhythm now. They had their two week break. They now have two weeks to the semi final. They're after putting in that savage performance against Tyrone. Kerry couldn't be in a better place. And the dubs, like, I think the real debate here is whether Dublin should be number one. And that's the thing I really struggled with this week. Should Dublin be number one? Because that second half performance was frightening. As a Mead person, I, I nearly cried, like, it was just. They're bloody back and they had not shown anything like that since I would argue 2019. Like, your, none of it in 2020, none of it in 21, not even against Kerry like when they when they put up that challenge. Against Kerry it felt like one last sting of a dying wasp. Yeah. Well, Jesus Christ, the it, giant was back. It's desperately hard to call which is the best team. But in, Tommy, in Tommy's defence, you, you had Kerry at number one and mm. you know if, if you'd moved Kerry down to number two after them beating Tyrone in the, in the manner in which they did, I, it would have been a farce as well. So mm. I, I'm not sure it would have been a farce, Shane. Like, I can't really control what happens with the power rankings. It, they just kind of they just kind of come to me, you know? It happens. And like, you know, Monaghan being where they're at, like, there, there's obviously a streak in Galway where they haven't got over the line. They've won their provincial scram. they finished second in the league, fine. But, like, it was in Galway's hands this year and they had done so much right and they had been in first place in the power rankings and they just threw it away. And it's the same thing with Armagh. Armagh have been three penalty shootouts away from winning the Ulster title and being in two back-to-back All-Ireland semi-finals. <laughs> it's such fine lines, but that is sport. It's Gaelic football. It's top-level elite sport. That's why we love it. It's going to be so worth it for whoever does it because the, the margins are that tight. And Monaghan being in fifth place fully deserved their Ireland minor final this weekend against Derry mm-hmm. uh, Vinnie Corey like what an exceptional job he's done even the manner in which he's used this panel this year like I was looking at the Monaghan team chain at the weekend like was there only three recognised proper out and out forwards starting in Jack McCarron Stevie O'Hanlon Conor McCarthy at wing back like Gary Moan I'd argue is a, is a bloody middle third player yeah. he's nearly taken on the mantle of being a sow like Darren Hughes has done for so many years a sow of a man and like I'm looking at the rest of the team there you've got uh, McCarron obviously in the corner you've got O'Hanlon at 10 uh, Michal Bannigan is another forward yeah. so really they started with three forwards and McCarthy then at wing back so like four out and out forwards McManus how they've used them comes off the bench kicks it four points they've protected them all year long they've used them exceptionally well like 
what a job he's done. But like Monaghan won that game at the weekend with a forty six percent, I think, conversion rate. Yeah, the white the white card was was a concern, and that's why I, th- I thought it was going to go south for Monaghan. And uh, how many alters did you give out? Because it doesn't well, work like that. Buddy. I know, of course, yeah. And I think getting to a semi final maybe only guarantees you possibly two, maybe three, if you're doing very well. So if it's doesn't two, guarantee if, anything. If it well it doesn't guarantee anything. Conor McCarthy's one, I think, is guaranteed. Um, Based on all of his performances this year, it's been consistency. One two from wing back against Clare. One two from wing back uh, against Kildare as well, and then yeah. three points at the weekend. Like he's clutch, and, and the, these scores are outrageous as well. Um, yeah, two twelve from play in the championship this year. I think he's in the top six or seven scorers from playing the championship. Nice. McCarthy's been a revelation, and I hundred percent will back it if McCarthy puts in a good performance next mm. time against Dublin. hundred percent, he's right in the mix. But like there is. Absolutely no guarantees at this stage of the competition, especially when we've had so many matches this year. I think it's going to be even out a bit more. I might give McCarthy a better shout. Tommy, does, um, does the league become a bit of a bit of an irrelevance now? Like when you look at Galway and Mayo this year, is like what was the point in any of this? Like, I mean, fair enough, you can still like go through the back door, but also just win your province or come second in your province, and then the league it might be this thing for teams that are kind of looking for a league position to get into the that 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 section of the tournament. But like, what was the point in any of this when Gal- when like Dublin were sort of going through the most? in Division 2 and Kerry were like bang average up until essentially that Kerry were going through the motions until last weekend you're like this is just a phony war up until now for Dublin and Kerry who are suddenly just look miles better than everyone else even though they haven't all year yeah there was there was an element to that and um, what was the phrase you used there that they, they was you didn't use shadow boxing you used something else there. Phony, phony war, war yeah yeah like th- there's like I'd love to know the the sports scientists behind this all because they've obviously timed it to absolute perfection when you look at Mayo's strong start to the league, right? And McStay was obviously in with his management team. They'd lost Mullen and Keegan. They'd draw to Galway. They'd draw to Armagh. I think they put in another two good wins. I think they went down and carried the next day or something like that. And a lot of people are looking now saying, like, why didn't he mix it up a little bit more or, or change up the panel or, you know, mix up who he was going with? Like, McStay felt like, this is important now. We'll go for the win in the league. And I think it was a big thing for Mayo to win a bit of national silverware for all the younger players and the, the newer players, you say, coming through. Um, Galway kind of ended up there by default. I think the Rossies were in a really good position for a long time. Uh, Derry and Dublin couldn't help it. They were in Division 2, but, you know, they were able to time their run to a certain extent. I would say that it is probably is like the league has been important at different times. Like we've over the years, like Derry were a great league team and couldn't switch it on in championship back around 12, 13, 14. Um, there's been different times where different league titles have been important. I think Kerry won one in, in 17 and that felt massive for that Kerry team. They bet Dublin in the final. Dean Rock missed a late free, hit the post. Um, and I think it was the first match Brian Fenton had ever lost actually as a Dublin footballer. Um, Mayo winning one in 19 felt like a big thing for that team. There's different years where the league means more. And I think next year the league is going to mean less than it ever has done. Mm. Because teams are going to look at this year and go, what can we learn from last year? I don't think the provincials will matter as much. I think just getting a, a good... We good have to A, get into the groups and then B, try to win the group, basically. That's exactly. it. Exactly. That's it. Win the group. That's the key. Because to get your two-week, 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 that's the run you want to the All-Ireland. Um, and I think that's totally fair, Johnny. I think teams are going to treat it slightly differently next year. I don't necessarily think that's going to be a bad thing. I think we're going to be mad for football when it comes back in February. Um, I think eventually there might be a tweak to the system where we'll get an exciting provincial championship played in February, March, the league kicking off then, and then we're into a round robin after that. A, a, fi- a fine one for me, sorry, I know we're running out of time, but just Martin Brehney, and I like the way the Indo does this, the tease up article is taking place the next day. So Martin Brehney, it's, it's a very interesting headline. It's like, why would you bring a new 
neutral to watch a game of Gaelic football. Right, so is this just an old man kind of shouting at clouds who's seen football for years and years and years from my neck of the woods and he's just got pissed off with the way the game has gone? Or do you look at those games, even Monaghan Armagh for me, like, if you really think that's a crap game, I don't think you understand how good Gaelic football has become in another way. Mm. Yeah. Well, I put it to you this way. I was in a cable car going from one side of Porto to another and there was an Iranian couple uh, in it with me and obviously I was watching the Monaghan Armagh game it was at the end of the game and uh, it was that moment where Reen O'Neill and Manzi um, swapped those points and McGinney came on and, or maybe it was at the end it was a shoulder it was a Mohan nail turban yeah, yeah. and he leant over and he goes my god what are you watching I was like it's Gaelic football I'll tell you one thing he was googling Gaelic football after he got off that cable car he wanted to see what was going on after that so look at football isn't perfect there isn't a hope in hell it's perfect at the minute but some teams showed us how it should be played at the weekend. There was nearly two different sports at the weekend. Like, would you not bring a neutral to watch David Clifford? Like, yeah, absolutely would. You know, and and look, I think there's things that can be fixed about the game. But like, when GA Gold came on during the pandemic and we got to see all those old games, like a lot of them were shite. A lot of them were absolutely You're nostalgic for it's like it's like horrific. the old boys who said communism was better. It actually wasn't. You can't have all good yeah. games though. Can't always be good games. I think the, the game can improve, but like physically, athletically, skill level, they're as good as it's probably ever been. 100%. And uh, a couple of little tweaks needed. But yeah, I think the big debate here should have been around Dublin Tyrone. Uh, sorry, Dublin Kerry. Like, the dubs were obviously absolutely frightening at the weekend. But I just think the manner in which Kerry won, the aggression they brought to their table, the anger they played with, mm. uh, just had kept them in the first place. And I think it's if, if Kerry can double down with that against Derry and it's going to be very difficult Derry are going to put in a really good performance if Kerry can double down and if Dublin can just about get by the clutch Kings Monaghan who don't forget have already relegated them last year um, and stayed up this year and have won so many games put so many games in the fire if Dublin can just get past Monaghan we could be set up for an absolute epic All-Ireland final yeah. Um, but who knows maybe it's going to be a unique one and one of Monaghan and Derry are going to get there as well you never know you never know it's backroom teams as well Paddy Talley's influence on that Kerry team has probably helped keep them number one and, and also people wouldn't have, mightn't have known this before but that Monaghan circle of uh, players and backroom team on the pitch at Croke Park after the match some people have seen Porrick Duffy the former director general of the GEA who is um, I think it's logistics he's head of logistics he's certainly had been out uh, and he's been involved in Monaghan well, teams and, and stuff I'm not surprised, Shane, and I know you're on the payroll as well. So there's only about how many people eligible to, to help Monaghan at this stage, like the size of the club, the amount of clubs, the size of the population. It is an unbelievable story, and it's they're they're one of my favourite teams, genuinely. Like they are unbelievable, um, but they can't be higher than fifth at the moment. Absolutely. Maybe if they win the All Ireland minor title, they'll jump in the fourth. Well, possibly. Uh, can I give a mention to a bit of news you got coming up Go later today? Yep. The football pod have a roadshow coming up the Thursday night before the All Ireland final. And it is going to be in the perfect venue. Crow Park. Oh. We're going to be in the Hogan Stand Suite the Thursday night before the All-Ireland Final. Uh, Paddy Andrews, James O'Donoghue and special guests. It is going to be absolutely class. Tickets go on sale later today. They're going to be limited availability. So make sure you get a hold of them when you can. And uh, and yeah. Brilliant stuff. That'll be a class one, Tommy. For the, for the podcast listeners, Cork are down one to ninth. Tyrone down three to eighth. Galway stay in seventh. Armagh in sixth. Monaghan up four to fifth place in the power rankings uh, despite it being a four horse race Mayo down one to fourth Derry up one to third and then as Tommy said Dublin second and Kerry still the kingpins in first Tommy great stuff thanks Shane thanks Johnny great stuff Tommy Rooney's latest power rankings 
Tommy knows his football, obviously, listening to football pod the odd time. And I was looking at the power rankings and I thought that Jesus Owen must still be feeling the effects of these mushrooms. Thing just makes me laugh after each one. Uh, yeah, thirty-three a.m. on this Tuesday morning's OTB AM with myself and Johnny, uh, the sports breakfast show from Off the Ball. Delighted to have Jenny Claffy and Colin Bubig join us back in studio. Jenny, how are things? Hey, Shane, how's it going? Even well. Even even busy at the European Championships. Is that what we're calling it? European the, Games. European yeah. Games. Sorry, of course. The, pa- the paddle. <laughs> I made the mistake too. Represent your country again. This is this is massive. Yeah, some honour. Uh, absolutely amazing experience there last week in Krakow at the European Games, uh, playing paddle. Uh, just oh my god I'm looking back at it going that was a dream um, you know getting to walk out wearing Ireland across your, your chest is, is such an honour every time you get the chance and to do it with a different sport is pretty cool as well doubles you were playing doubles or was it singles as well yeah so uh, paddle is only played as doubles okay, so yeah. my partner was uh, Susan McCran so she was the one who, who roped me into paddle uh, and I thank her for that now <laughs> the fitness levels how does it compare to, to tennis obviously it's, it's less ground to cover but I, I assume you need the reflexes and, and still a pretty decent base level of fitness yeah I was surprised actually uh, when I started playing paddle how physical it actually is like you know compared to tennis tennis is such a bigger court and obviously you've got more more ground to cover but it's a lot of like stop start forward back like squash kind of because right. it's a mixture of squash and tennis so you're going back and forth a lot and it's about getting into the nets so you're oh and then you're either trying to get to that or else they're lobbing you so you're going back and forth the whole time and there's no break so you know in tennis like you can kind of take your time walking over to get a ball there's no the, the cage you're enclosed in a cage you don't really get much downtime. Um, but I, it didn't take too long to get used because I have that baseline of, of fitness from tennis. What's easier to learn, tennis or paddle? Um, paddle, I think. Um, coming from a tennis background, it's a little bit difficult to adjust to paddle because obviously I'm coming in trying to whack the ball and, and that doesn't actually stand to you in paddle because if you hit the ball with power, it bounces back up off the wall and it gives the opponent right. a chance then to, to dictate again. But learning that the paddle shots um, is probably a little bit more straightforward compared to tennis, whereas there's also no serve in paddle. So that alleviates a huge problem because t- the serve in tennis is the most difficult shot so to How learn. did the ball come into play in paddle? You serve underarms, underarm, yeah, serve. underarm, yeah, and you're always trying to get into the net um, and control the point from the net. Um, and you think, oh, here comes like they lob you a lot, so you think here comes the lob, we'll just smash this. And if I use my tennis smash, as I said, unless you hit it hard enough and it bounces, hits the back wall, it can come all the way back over to your side where they can't get a play on it. Right. But if you don't hit it correctly, it'll bounce, and then they then have a high ball on their side, which they can then um, put away. Very tactical. Very, and it's a lot of slice. So they, you use a lot of slice. There's no topspin at all. Really, well, there's a little bit, but it's not really um, played with topspin. So flat and slice is the way you want the ball. Give us an impression of doing a slice hit there. Then. A little. Yeah. <laughs> there's a shot called like this bandeja. So bandeja. it's like yeah, where you come right, up to like that. shoulder height and you like slice come around. They say it's like um, throwing like a you know when you're skimming a stone. Yeah. yeah. So skimming a stone uh, across the ball. So there's no actual like wrist movement on it. It's just using your body. That was the official around. social media imagery of you actually. It was like the swish of the ball. Yeah. And yeah, the troll. Like Mohammed bin Salman over there. For <laughs> 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 you're doing it like. It's like handball. No, you're, like a t- you're, you're shaping your arm like you're playing handball. It feels yeah. like you're almost pushing more with yeah. your body. Yeah. Than you brought actually. us in a tennis racket. Can you bring us in a paddle? Paddle. Oh yeah. oh yeah, I've only just got one there not that long ago. <laughs> only have the one. Yeah, the one, yeah. And they're not cheap, my gosh, yeah. What are we talking? They're more expensive than tennis rackets. They reckon I have a thing, it's about 350 quid. And it looks like basically a beach bat. Yeah. Okay, that, forgive me for saying that, but it does, like it's it's really thick, but it's like, it looks kind of like shaped like a... You know, I think this is bat. the game that Adrian Barry wanted. Uh, it was, wasn't it? Wanted us to play. And he, I think he's reached out to a few places to see if they'll give us a game. Yeah, so I was actually chatting that, yeah. with uh, the pre- president of the Paddle Federation, Naomi. She's been really 
really great in my development um, with Paddle. She was offering us to go up and have a game in Bushy Park, so oh, we must oh. take her up on that. Yeah. 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 So, like, where can you play this in Ireland, apart from Bushy Park? So at the moment, there's only there's only 25 courts around right. Ireland. Um, so Bushy Park is is the main kind of place. Um, Fitzwilliam Tennis Club, they have three paddle courts. Uh, Rockbrook School in North Farnham, there's one in Beckett. They're kind of spread around. It's mainly in Leinster, mm. but they by the end of this year, they're going to have 50. So uh, it's kind of obviously, it's growing quickly, just not quickly enough for... for I've never demand. heard of it. I've never heard of it, yeah. <laughs> You're not the only one. A few of the, uh, like even the Irish athletes last week when we were travelling to Krakow, they were like, is that, what's paddle? Is that in the water? So we were like, yeah, having to explain. Thought, you like, were with the uh, boxers. We went to so diving. It was meant to be boxing, but we actually travelled with the divers. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, and some of the canoeists and, and kayakers. So even they were asking us. I was like, lads, you're in the water. You should know. Yeah. If, if it's with a paddle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. So uh, we were having to whip out the rackets and show them what it was and how it's played. So the, the European Games is just a really great opportunity for us to showcase paddle, you know, in Europe as well as hopefully, mm. you know, it, it, it's trickled down here into Ireland so more people are going to get involved. But it's a fast growing sport in the world at the moment. Wow. Mm. I feel um, onto Wimbledon that Sophia Kennan and Coco Gauff had no business being a first round match. That's the quality of that. That should be a second week game, at least fourth round. You're talking about a Grand Slam champion against a Grand Slam finalist. What a match. It's tough, yeah, because, I mean, you know, looking at Wimbledon, looking ahead to Wimbledon, you would have thought Goff could have been maybe an outside favourite, you know, because her game kind of would suit the, the grass and she was in the top half with Shantek, so the, the bottom half is quite stacked in the women's side. So she kind of had a bit of a chance, you might have thought. And then when she came up against Kennan, that was straight away, that was popcorn tennis, you knew, because Kennan is a former um, Grand Slam champion and a former Grand Slam finalist. So we know she has the ability. She's just had a few uh, ropey years with injuries and whatnot. How cruel is that, like, uh, you can say it better than anyone that the cruelty of professional tennis is like, she was a 2020 French Open finalist, like you said, and she had to go through qualifying at the French Open this year and didn't get through qualifying. Yeah, it's... There's no sentimentality at all in tennis. No, but like, you know, you hear, look at the draw, like, that was unfortunate for Goff because she came up against Kennan. But I actually think that the qualifying stood to Kennan because she'd come in, she's played three matches, you know, she's gotten used to the surroundings, she's mm. played on grass, she has coming in then with a bit of confidence, whereas Goff, you know, coming out on a, on a main court and it's, you know, there's always going to be nerves and the expectation and pressures, like, it takes you almost a first set to get used to that, whereas Kennan has, has had three matches under her belt and will come in with confidence and she looked every bit confident yesterday coming up against Goff she was feisty she was ready for the fight and, yeah. and it was a great game it was a really really close game I think that was probably one of the, that was the best match in Wimbledon yesterday hmm. yeah what's the final score I have it in front of me here 6-4 like, and Kennan's had the injury issues as well she's had upheavals in her coaching team so like dealing with all that sort of crack is just and to be able to guide, I guess put that to one side and focus on a major is so important Like, yeah I mean that that's trials and tribulations I guess of being a professional athlete you have to deal with the, the off off track or off course mm. issues yeah she had um, her dad was her coach and then they they had a break up and then he came back and then all that kind of stuff's going to weigh heavily on her but she's a fantastic tennis player it's just we say this about a lot of the tennis the women's side as well but can they carry through the form you'd like to see after beating a big name of Goff yesterday that she can carry on now and, and you know push on and do well in the tournament How do you think um, the state of women's tennis is at the moment? 
it's looking healthy mm. definitely healthier than it was there for the last few years um, since Ash Barty retired last year she was kind of the, the top of the game and we were thinking she was going to emerge as being the top for a while and then she kind of had that shock retirement mm. I think we're looking at we're talking about sorry the top three um, Shiontek Sabalenka and Ribakina as being the, the next big serious thing. players like all three of them unbelievable yeah um, can they you know, do what the men did and, yeah. and push each other on for the next number of years and, and can we see some amazing records be made in the women's side hopefully but there are other names like Jabur Mukova um, if we're talking about Kennan Goff there's loads of players who will be pushing pushing um, those players on as well I mean it's hard to call will we see Shiontek dominating for the next 10 years you know, but there is. It definitely looks healthier that we have some rivals at the top of the women's game. Yeah, it's, it's so much better than the men's game because there's one and the rest still in the men's game. Whereas yeah. the women's, like you've just named, like more than half a dozen players who could all win Wimbledon. Yeah. The other side of it too is all of those players you mentioned could walk down the street and might not be recognised. Is that a bad thing? Necessarily, oh, it, it is a bad thing, isn't it? For the game, yeah. I think, but maybe for them, no, because you know you don't yeah, want that. Have your life, like, yeah, 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 you can have that bit of privacy, but yeah, I mean, we will. We like, yeah, come on, we do know who Shvantec. If she walked into him, you'd recognize her. I wouldn't her. recognize her. Really? No. I, I really, I think a lot of people wouldn't. I really do. And, and maybe I, tennis, it, tennis fans. Tennis fans no, of course, yeah, yeah. But I'm talking about uh, like a, a sports fan. Yeah, who would yeah when horse racing is like that as well, yeah. it's like you know, if Ryan Moore walked in here today, most who's like the biggest. I'm going to Roscommon and see Ryan Moore. People wouldn't know who he is, like. Mm. Ten- tennis is peripheral as well. Um, Take something like like same in Formula One, drive survive, mm. increase the yeah the awareness of people around certain drivers, and uh, like it's kind of the same for different sports like that. That it's only unique. Well, maybe it hasn't worked in tennis. No, I guess point definitely yeah. hasn't worked for. Like that was part of the that. plan to make some of these kind of middle of middle tier players more recognisable. But I don't know if it's worked to the same degree. I don't think it has yeah we were talking about that a little bit like how they haven't well you know we want to see the kind of the journeymen as well as yeah. the top players and yeah. see like everyone wants to see what Djokovic is doing at home and you know everyone wants a little insight into what's making him the best tennis player in the world or Shiontek we only kind of got a snippet of her we didn't get anything with Djokovic and Nadal like. Shiontek obviously winning in straight sets yesterday but she's never got beyond the fourth round of Wimbledon like it, grass tends to be maybe not her her strength, she kind of. She, I, I even listened in interviews to her. She wants to become more of an all-court yeah. type player. Do you think she deserves to be among the favourites for Wimbledon? I guess her grass form hasn't led people to to accept okay. that she should be one of the favourites. But then it's Shvantec, so yeah. why not? Yeah, I think uh, she's certainly mastered clay course, as we know, three-time French Open um, Grand Slam winner. Then she's also mastered the hard court. She's done very well there last year in the US Open. It's the gra- grass season is so short; like it's only maybe four weeks, so they don't get a huge amount to play on the on the grass. So it's not really surprising that not that many players are brilliant on grass. Like we look at Djokovic, obviously, because he's been playing on grass for so many years in Wimbledon, but. Shiontek is like I think this last year was like her third season or not even third season playing yeah. on grass although she did win Junior Wimbledon in 2018 yeah so that's yeah. A, you know her she, talent overrided her lack of experience but yeah you know that so often um, the lack of experience on grass courts like, I think Novak Djokovic's first match on grass was when he was 17, 17 he just yeah. didn't grow up around first it first match yeah. yeah and it's hard because back in the 70s and 80s three of the floor slams were on grass at the Australian Open yeah. and the US Open and they changed the surface and it was a total lot of way around and I think grass is the only 
uh, surface that doesn't have a Masters 1000 event. Yeah. So it is seen, seen as completely specialised. So you see all these really talented players exit so early on in Wimbledon. Yeah, well, so it makes it really unpredictable. Yeah, it d- definitely does because of that. Because like Roland Garros finished three weeks ago. Three weeks, they only have three weeks to prepare on grass. Mm, I think yeah. it's two tournaments normally that they either play, generally only play one, uh, one or two to get the warm-up event, to get time on grass. And a lot of them don't expect to win those tournaments. It's more just getting their feet on the grass, getting used to it. <clears throat> the game is played so differently compared to clay court like on clay you have much more time the rallies are longer the grass course like it's so quick the yeah. surface is so quick you're, you have to adjust your footwork you've got to get used to the, the, the not being able to slide well although some players can slide on, on grass like it's a completely different game altogether it's so fast like you're playing up closer to the baseline the points are shorter you have to hit more <clears throat> with more power whereas on clay you get away with um, more spin so that's where you look at Sviantek she's so dominant on clay because her game suits clay she has a really big wind up on her forehand and she creates loads of top spin on that her backhand's very very uh, good on as well on the clay court because she can hit through that a bit more mm. so she wants to improve her grass court tennis even though it's only for four weeks of the year she's got to try and adju- adjust her game like she needs to flatten out her shots more she needs to shorten up that take back on her forehand and she has the footwork like she's an amazing um, athlete on the court and moves really, really well so that is one of her strengths but I think she just needs to sharpen up those aspects of her game and maybe introduce a bit more slice and whatnot. But grass, is the trickiest. grass is the trickiest <laughs> surface generally speaking to adjust to I think especially right. after coming from the clay yeah and as we mentioned they don't get that much time on it but it's just it's a different it's a little bit of a different game it's qu- it's just so quick compared to the other um, hard court and clay where they have a little bit more time mm. on the ball um, Novak Djokovic's <coughs> competition <laughs> there is none right well I think there I mean Carlos Alcaraz won Queen's and has F all experience on grass. Yeah, that was his third tournament. But um, then yeah. he played Djokovic on his favourite surface on clay in the French Open semi final. And in his own words, it got to him. Playing yeah. Djokovic got to him. That was a surprise. Yeah. I really think that was a surprise. He was favourite going into that match, which is yeah. hard to believe. Yeah. And just the occasion, the nerves, the stress got to him. You really you, you find that hard to believe that that happens mm. to athletes at that level when he is a Grand Slam winner, he has been to that stage and stage of a tournament, he's experienced that, albeit he is only twenty and he hasn't got that much experience. But still it was obviously the hype and the pressure created by himself and his team and the media that, that got him in that situation. But looking at Wimbledon for the men's side, there Djokovic is the, the runaway favourite. Like I don't really think there's anyone who's gonna come close to him. He seemed to get a nice reception yesterday like reasonably nice reception I think it's a good point I think he's finally getting to the place where he has a real aura about him his greatness is just and it's undeniable deniable, and yeah. also statistically he's he's going to be the greatest I yeah. mean if he, if he wins this Wimbledon he'll be level with the number of Wimbledons <coughs> that Roger Federer That's won mad, yeah. isn't it? and if he wins this competition he'll also have the most number of Grand Slams ever won joint with Marco Kart yeah He's at, you know, he's favourite to win the US Open. He could finish the year with the calendar slam, winning all four slams in one year. And that also that will make him the greatest player ever. Is he likable though? But is he? I see, <laughs> and the thing with Djokovic is out of the big three between Rafael Nadal, Federer and himself, he so wants to be loved. More than the other two ever did, but the problem is he's Maybe by he far the least loved. Then, you know, I mean, like he's just he's, he's controversial. <laughs> I know, but and he's abrasive. Djokovic just one thing as well. I mean, he also set up a players' union. Uh, with Pospisil the Canadian yeah. player which is very admirable but it excluded women which is another thing yeah. you know yeah, that he does like uh, there, but he but doesn't yeah. think like he doesn't think of the, the bigger PR picture for a guy who was obsessed with his image he's very reactionary and instinctive and uh, there's probably um, it's probably hard to warm to him at times I actually do enjoy watching his matches because he's such a tough player to play against it's like who said, I think it was Casper Ruud because he's lost two Grand Slam finals to him yeah. it's uh, or one actually sorry the French Open recently 
he said the problem with Djokovic is he has no weakness. Yeah, he's in every single point. The last two women in the finals, he's lost the first set against Nick Kyrgios last year, Matteo Berrettini the year before. It doesn't matter to him. Doesn't Imagine playing an opponent like that. He's just, yeah, he's just, he is unbelievable. Like, as much as people like to hate him, you know, he is just undeniably the best tennis player at the moment. And he's really showing, like, he's crushing all of these records you're talking about there. Like, he overcame, you know, in, in French Open, he, he, he's now the most, uh, he's got the most Grand Slams on the men's side. If he wins Wimbledon, 24 Grand Slams, matches Margaret Court, beats, Red, uh, or matches Roger Federer's eighth. Uh, Wimbledon title it's just like he hasn't lost on centre court in 40 matches in Wimbledon he, has, he hasn't that lost Andy, Andy Murray defeat was that the last time he yeah, lost on centre court and Andy Murray is the only player in the draw 128 players is the only player in the draw who's actually beaten Djokovic on grass as well that's mad yeah and that was in the final 10 years ago 10 years ago yeah. that's 10 years ago this like, year. god yeah I mean he's just he's so good he's just so good on the surface it's, wasn't the match it was, it, uh, it was a 4 years 2019 final Federer had 2 championship points against Djokovic oh sickening and at that point he was ahead of you he was ahead of the other Federer two to win. yeah I love Federer he's my favourite nothing against Djokovic but I love Federer <laughs> how do you compete how do you have a compete with the Federer image you can't you can't no, touch him no true I saw a photo of Roger Federer with Elton John yesterday he pops up and then like he's singing a Coldplay concert like, he's this a guy is just he's unbelievable uh, they, I, I've spent this morning googling how much do, did the Wimbledon centre court roof cost you get different figures like 150 million dollars was mentioned 75 million pounds was mentioned but I mean, this is this, that was a farce yesterday during the match. Oh, so, like the gosh. roof is closed for anyone who hasn't seen what happened. Djokovic beats Argentina's Pedro Castron six three six three seven six on set of court. But then after that first set, there was no play for eighty minutes, despite the roof being closed. Um, Djokovic was dabbing the grass. The leaf blowers came out. He was encouraging the crowd to start blowing in from the crowd to 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 dry it. And it was just like for for a roof that's cost so much. I think it was the humidity maybe that that's caused this issue. But it's this is again climate change, isn't it? It's like it's like when it when it hit forty degrees in 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 the UK last year, the railways couldn't function because we're not built for this. Already, so I presume, and I'm not going on a, on a, another tirade here, but I presume they're just not used to this humidity. The weather was nuts in Dublin yesterday, and I was yeah. thinking, how is this going to affect Wimbledon? Because like it was a blue sky about like ten yards away, and I was getting absolutely drenched, and it was very yeah. very humid over the last two weeks. So I presume they didn't actually build it with a yeah. view to the changing climate. I presume. Well, if you spent that money on a roof, surely you can yeah. do with humidity as well as a precipitation. I don't know what... But, like, but you don't build a roof for humidity. You build a roof to keep the rain away. Yeah, yeah but no. you should consider the humidity. You know, when well, the Colin, you're, you're the tennis expert. I've never seen that happen before at Wimbledon. It's unprecedented. Yeah. I don't know how it did. There's 15,000 people in the crowd. Tim Henneman, who's involved in the tournament, was asked about it on BBC and he said, I'll get an answer for you. I don't know what happened. <laughs> Like yeah, you saw in Qatar um, how they had to keep the, the air conditioning going in, in winter or whatever. So they're obviously equipped for it. But Wimbledon was not built to deal with humidity in, this, in, a, with, in a stadium with a roof, I presume. I, I'm presuming here. Because the climate is changing so rapidly, we just don't know what to do about it, basically. Was that not, did they not wait till the first set was over to put the roof over yeah, and there was a little bit of rain? Yeah, so yeah. then the surface was wet then and then yeah. they closed oh. over the, the roof and then that obviously created okay. then the, yeah. the core. They were saying like the grass was sweaty. So like they couldn't. That's the same effect of playing it on wet. Rainy. Should mention Michael Moe as well, uh, the Monaghan man. He's not a Monaghan man, he's American, uh, slash, I think he's a few other nationalities as well. He uh, famously got to the third round of the Australian Open, beat Zverev en route in the second round. Uh, but he yesterday beat the 11th seed, uh, Felix Auger Ali Asim, uh, in, in four sets. So just to mention him, his mother, Geraldine, was from Monaghan. Oh, okay. Um, so there Didn't is a link. know that. There's the yeah. Irish link there. Um, who, at this stage, before we let you go, Jenny, are you predicting for the. For the men's and uh, women's side of the draw? Undeniably Djokovic on the men's side. Uh, hopefully it'll be a Djokovic-Alcaraz good final though that we see. Um, and then on the women's side, that's a really hard one to call. 
if it would have gone to my head I'd say Shiontek uh, just because I want her to show that she's right. able on the grass um, but it could be anyone they could be Rebekina Sabalenka I think oh, my outside favourite would be Kvitova I'd love to see her win just because she's she's won it twice before and she's a great grass court player won a tournament last week and it'd be nice to see her but I, I just can't see it being one of outside the top three no. so Shiontek uh, Jenny, thanks for coming in as always. Thanks for pleasure. Being. Thanks for pleasure. being here. Uh, Eight fifty-three a.m. approaching on Tuesday mornings. Uh, OTB a.m. with myself and Johnny Ward, the uh, sports breakfast show from Off the Ball. Uh, Colm, it's been a it's been a, a very sad and tragic couple of days. We had the, the news of Greg Oliver's passing, the Munster rugby coach yeah. dying in a, in a paragliding accident in South Africa yesterday. Uh, but generally speaking, it's been a, it's been a, a tragic couple of days, and it's kind of hit close to home here as well in Off the Ball. Yeah, yeah, we were shocked to hear the the tragic news of the passing of the former St Michael students. Andrew Donnell and Max Vaughan and their post-leaving Street Holiday in EOS. Max actually had transition year work experience with Off the Ball in the summer of 2021. It was during the height of COVID when many, many people were working from home, but that uh, inconvenience didn't phase Max in the slightest, which was so impressive considering his tender age. Max was an extremely bright, chatty and intelligent young man with a huge interest in sport and an equally big future ahead of him. This is very clear within minutes of meeting Max. He stood out for his age in terms of his natural interest in how the industry worked and how keen he was to develop himself in both ambition and practice. But mostly, Max was a very kind and thoughtful person. The thoughts of everyone at Off the Ball are with both of their families and friends during this awful time. May they rest in peace. Yep, absolutely. We'll, uh, we'll uh, send our condolences to Andrew and Max's family. That's tragic news. I think the whole country was, was touched by the, by the news when it came in over the last couple of days. So, uh, just horrendous and then the news of Greg Oliver's passing as well yesterday is just um, terrible thing so obviously our thoughts everyone at Off the Ball is with uh, the family of Andrew and Max as well uh, between now and 10 o'clock loads more still to come on the show with John Duggan coming in with us uh, in just a moment as well 8.50 it's already gone beyond 8.50 so we're, we're clearly over time but uh, Jonathan Wilson is going to join us very shortly we're going to talk uh, Mason Mind we're going to talk Declan Rice um, a few other bits beside as well Stephen Gerrard of course taking that job in Saudi Arabia as we mentioned at the top of the show uh, and then around 9.10, 9.15 Conneth Gilligan the former uh, Derry uh, footballer is going to join us as well to, to kind of reflect even further on the weekend we'll touch uh, maybe a little bit more we did we Keith, Wiggins, Keith Higgins yesterday on uh, talking Mayo but we'll talk a bit more on Derry a bit more on Monaghan as well um, but uh, we do have a clip before before all that so uh, we'll be back with uh, John Duggan in the studio in just a moment we have Caitlin Thompson discussing Djokovic with uh, Joe last night to what extent? What what is the gap here? Because we all had high hopes for um, Carlos Alcaraz at um, the French, and he's won a Queens, won the warm up tournament at Queens, Alcaraz. But uh, he seemed to say the occasion got to him a touch against Djokovic in the semi final. It was insane going into that match that Alcaraz was the favorite. Obviously, he had had a meteoric rise lifting the trophy last year in New York as the U.S. Open champion. But anybody who favored Alcaraz, even on his preferred surface of clay against Djokovic, somebody who at the time had 22 majors, is sort of insane. Um, I have to hope that if the two of them clash again in this tournament, even though the, the surface obviously favors Djokovic given his track record and past performance. But I have to hope that at least some of that experience uh, earlier this spring in Paris would have benefited Alcaraz because not only did Alcaraz play 
uh, not quite play up to his potential. He also was just racked with nerves, cramping, which is what happened with him, where he kind of lost his legs there towards the end of the match, is something that often happens when nerves get the better of you and you're using up a lot of energy because of sort of stress and anxiety. So I have to hope at the very least we'll get a better performance out of him. But despite the fact that Alcaraz comes in as the number one seed, anybody saying that Novak Djokovic is not the favorite to win this and get one step closer to the calendar year slam, uh, which, you know, obviously he's hurtling towards after really great performances in, in Melbourne and Paris is just taking crazy pills. They're, they're trying to sell you something because the truth is Djokovic is far and away the favorite. That's not to say he's a lock. This is a tricky surface and you know, anything can happen, but uh, Alcaraz, I wouldn't say if Djokovic is going to lose, it's going to be because of Alcaraz. It is 8.57 a.m. approaching here on Tuesday morning's OTBN, the Sports Breakfast Show from Off the Ball with myself, Shane Hannon, and Johnny Ward. We have John Duggan now in the studio. Morning, John. Shane, Johnny, how are we doing? Keeping well. Happy 4th of July, John. Happy how Independence doing? Day. Hacker. Sacker. What's your, uh, we, were, we were just discussing in the ad right there, uh, American sports experiences. I'm sure we've all had, you've been to America a number of times. I've been to uh, Gridiron, I've been to college basketball, I've been to basketball, NBA and I've been to few baseball games um, I find baseball unbelievably boring and <laughs> it's not helped by the fact that I think they they sold two beers Bud and Bud Light one of which was worse than the other so it was like you've three or four hours of this to get through and like you've I mean other beers know. are available yeah and so anyway um, basketball I, I find there's just too many scores in it I find it quite boring but I love American football I love going to American which football which gridiron game were you at? Uh, I've seen the Jets and the Giants um, I'm, I'm, I'm try- I think I've, I've only been to pre-season I don't think I've actually been to a regular game but the Jets are playing the Giants in regular season this season um, they're also playing in pre-season so maybe I'll get to that I haven't been to the new um, Giant Stadium either I, I was in the old one so the new what do they call it now the, the Meadowlands um, it's actually in New Jersey MetLife Stadium MetLife Stadium haven't been to that but um, yeah I love the whole experience of the of the day out of of American football and the, the breaks in play just don't bother you at all when you're there I find yeah, what about you? To, I've only, I haven't been to much. I was at the NFL London game. The Jaguars beat the Dolphins, but it was you know, you're not getting the full experience when it's in London. I guess. I tried to go last summer to a Colorado Rockies Major League Baseball game in Denver. Mm. We got to the ground. We were going to buy tickets uh, off the touts, but then uh, you could. The, the stadium looked lovely. It was a lovely evening, but then we found a rooftop bar beside the stadium. We were like, you know what? We'll Let's maybe watch the match on TV and, and sit in this I, lovely, bar, lovely bar. So I also went to a hockey game and I also watched New York versus Leitrim in the Connor Championship. So there we go. That well, in, the, in the Bronx? Um, in the Bronx, yeah. I had a bet. I heard Jamie Clark was joining New York and this is like a few months in advance and New York were 5-2. to two. So like it was actually a good bet but it, it ended up being a draw. But we, I went out there on the premise that um, it was going to be paid for by Jamie Clark, which it wasn't. Um, well, there you go. <laughs> uh, a few other bits, John. There's, there's, we're talking about this new rugby competition as well, which it sounds like yeah. an interesting concept. My first ever day in America was in the Yankees Stadium. My first ever day in America went to see the Yankees. In the Bronx. Yeah, first ever day. And had the best oh, your first day in America? First ever day in America went to see the Yankees. What an experience. Arrived into New York, got a cab, did every cliche thing, got a cab, saw Manhattan when you when you appear and just like you see the massive, anybody's ever been, wants to go to New York, you just see the whole, all the skyscrapers. Uh, went to Grand Central Station, put my bag in a hotel and then went off to the Yankees. What you should do in New York is just like go to a bar and just get lost for a few days, basically. That's what happens. It's just like, it's such a mad city. I'm, I'm hoping to do that when Claire won the All-Ireland mm. in Claire. I can see it happen, month. JD. Mm. 
Worrying um, But you've done the Kentucky Derby as well, John? No, Breeders' Cup oh, in Breeders Kentucky. Breeders' Cup, sorry, yeah, yeah, yeah. Breeders' Cup's amazing. Highly recommended. Real quality racing for, for two days. And obviously there's Irish involvement in it as well with Aidan O'Brien. And the other sport I went to was college football in Atlanta. But never been to the Masters, never been to an NBA, never been to NFL. And uh, looking to hopefully put that right in the next few years. Well, yeah, I've been to Aqueduct, Saratoga and Belmont. Right. And Aqueduct is very near the uh, JFK and it's interesting because it's kind of like the dregs of the racing and a lot of people go there just to smoke weed and kind of like while the day away because they're just like kind of lads that probably don't have a job and they're just like it has that feel of a kind of a... Is it edgy? It's interesting, yeah. Like they're not afraid to roar abuse at jockeys that didn't win, you know, right. and possibly while high. Johnny Velasquez was in town. John Velasquez was, yeah. Well, what a legend. Johnny Mercer. Yeah. yeah. Um, and American racing's in serious, serious trouble at the moment. I'm not even sure it'll survive another 10 years. Right. Yeah, with just fatalities and drugs. Um, you the racing post an interesting article on this week, but uh, it's in serious, serious. Like, a lot of the tracks survive as racinos, where there are casinos to actually fund the prize money. But um, I'd wonder if it's going to survive in Britain in the next 20 years. I, uh, yeah, I wouldn't, wouldn't be backing it. Yeah, future mm. a bit bleak. Uh, we're way over time, John, but uh, happy 4th of July. Shane and uh, Johnny, it's been emotional. It's been emotional, and always a pleasure, as always. 9.01am on this Tuesday morning's OTBM. We're going to turn our attention to uh, Matters Football. We have Jonathan Wilson, football journalist, joining us on the line. Morning, Jonathan, how are things? Yeah, good, thanks. How are you? Brilliant. Keeping well, thank you very much. Um, I guess we'll start with Stephen Gerrard. Um, we could start in a number of places, but uh, he's the latest big name to make this uh, move to Saudi Arabia. Uh, deal to become the head coach of al Etifak. So we're returning to management, of course, first time since being sacked by Aston Villa last October. I guess the... the it's, I mean, I saw Robbie Fowler was moving to the second tier in Saudi Arabia as well. Uh, less and less surprising as the weeks go on that all these big names are heading off, I guess. Yeah, and I, I think with Stephen Gerrard, you were sort of starting to wonder where where would his next job be? You know, I, I think Villa, particularly given how well it's gone since he left, I think that really has sort of damaged his reputation with, within England. Um, and so would a Premier League club go for him? It's hard to, hard to imagine that. Maybe as sort of a Hail Mary last sort of month of the season in a sort of Sam Allardyce way. Um, and then, yeah, a championship club, well, you know, he's going to be pretty expensive. So... I, and I wonder as well whether his reputation, through no fault of his own, is, is damaged by sort of association with Frank Lampard, that even now we can't quite separate the two in our mind. And so the fact that Lampard failed so badly at Chelsea, that's also damaged Gerrard's reputation. So I guess going overseas where his name does still have a cachet, uh, I guess that makes sense. And, and you know, Saudi Arabia is the place everybody's going. It's where all the money is. Uh, it's interesting he's not going to one of these four PIF-owned clubs, mm. but clearly... You know, every club there has some kind of state involvement. So, um, you know, the source of the money is, is is pretty obvious. If you were offered a job, Jonathan, over there to be a journalist and you were offered obscene money, would you go? No. Why not? Uh, um, because, I, I, you know, we, it's very hard to take absolutely clean money, but I think there's levels of clean. So, you know, I, I used to work for a newspaper. You know, I was, I was freelance, but I used to work for a newspaper in Saudi Arabia. And I don't anymore. And that's, that was partly sort of a mutual parting of ways, but it was partly that I was sort of thinking, you know, I'm not, I'm not comfortable with this. I also worked for one in the UAE, um, that I left. So, yeah, I, I think I was, you know, I, I took those jobs naively. I didn't really sort of, thought, you know, think through where the money was coming from. Um, and as I say, it's not easy in journalism to find totally clean money, but I think state ownership when, 
they are states with with their records on on human rights. I think yeah, you you uh, you have to be very very careful, and you have to think really carefully about what your values are and and what you what you. Yeah, what you prioritise. Yeah, I've I've worked for Murdoch. I've worked for the Evening Standard, which is a little bit of own paper. So, like, you know, I I'm I'm probably a hypocrite in this as well. But the one thing for me, Jonathan, was like my club, Galway United, voted to be taken over by uh, a Saudi, ostensibly non-government fund uh, a few years ago, and it fell through inexplicably. But that was an interesting um, conflict of a lot of things because Galway United didn't really have any assets so I was thinking of the downsides were kind of neg- were kind of negligible um, but then really lived to regret it looking at the Newcastle experience and the whole sports washing thing but like can you if you're a Newcastle fan where are you at now? Um, I think it's really difficult and I've got a lot of sympathy for people yeah I I, I grew up in Sunderland um, I'm a Sunderland fan I went to watch Newcastle quite a lot when I was a kid because I had mates who were Newcastle fans and you know, we'd go to Sunderland one week, Newcastle the next. Um, and I don't know what, what what you do if if your club is suddenly swallowed up and, and taken over by by a, by a state body. On the one hand, I guess it's very hard not to be excited for a Newcastle fan by the level of football you're playing, the fact you're back in the Champions League, the fact that you're, you're buying um, players of extremely high quality. Uh, I guess that is thrilling, but I think I'd feel pretty uncomfortable about it. And the, the only, you know, until you're in that position, I, I think it's almost impossible to know. But when Paolo Di Canio was Sunderland manager, that was, there was a slight equivalence there. And my attitude to that was, okay, keep us up and then get out of the club as quickly as possible by whatever means that takes. And he did keep us up and then had a, thankfully had a really bad start the following season and was sacked pretty quickly. So that didn't drag on. Um, and yeah, there were, there were some Southern fans stopped going to games because of uh, Decanio's right-wing leanings. Um, and yeah, the, the, the uh, German miners particularly were, were very opposed to any of the, the, the um, uh, if you go to Sunderland now, you see the, 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 the banners from a uh, miners groups are still displayed before games. So that's, that's a, real core part of the club and that clearly politically was very powerful in the 20th century and is a, is a key part of the identity of the club and they felt the Canio and his politics were radically opposed to what they stood for what the club should stand for and I, I admired them for taking that stance I still went and watched them during that time I mean I was, not often because I was working most most weekends but occasionally I went to watch them and I still wanted them to win and, and that is a level of hypocrisy I think you can't can't really get around uh I think if my club was taken over by a state I was utterly opposed to, I I I, I hope I would I would step away, and, and hope it would be possible at some point in the future to to step back into it. But yeah, you know, it's easy for me to say living in London, not going regularly. If you're, yeah, you know, say say life would work that differently, and I'd still been up in the northeast, and yeah, you know, that, that 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 every other Saturday going to the pub with my mates, going to the game. That was sort of part of the ritual. That's that. That was the conditions in which you met your friends. Um, that was your sort of big relaxation. Asking people to step away from that um, is 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 pretty difficult. You could go to non-league clubs, and the northeast is is replete with very very good non-league clubs. But obviously, it's a it's a very very different thing. This does. Uh, I'm trying. I'm almost taking over the presenting here. Sorry, Shane. But uh, Colin did send the the article that Jonathan wrote um, in the Guardian at the weekend. Mm-hmm. Football clubs were born to represent communities and fans, not owners. As multi club ownership shows, the game, especially in England, has lost sight of the notion of football as a civic good. I'd implore anyone to read this article, and um, you know, even. 
even Shelburne, like uh, in Ireland, have become part of a multi-club model now here, a small club in, in North Dublin. But um, this really, really, uh, I, I felt reading this article, it, it struck with me because, you, you know, as you say, it's a ritual. It's something that it, it's nostalgic. It brings you back to the past. It brings you back to your family. It brings you back to watching TV um, you know, when, when there wasn't much football on TV and then it brings you back to the present, which is pretty shit, really. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's... I, I, I think it's probably a piece I had to wait till, till the close season to write where there wasn't other stuff going on. But it's something that's been sort of nagging at me for a while. That, so what is a club? And, and the problem is there's, there's all kinds of different models. And, you know, if you go to... Um, you have four Spanish clubs a member-owned. Germany, at least in theory, they're all member-owned with a couple of exceptions where there are works teams. Um, that's not a model we have in England, the, the idea of member-owned clubs. Some clubs lower down the pyramid, yes. Luton have a... I mean, they Luton situation, I, I sort of allied over that in the piece. But Luton are a really interesting model where it is a consortium put together by a local businessman. Uh, he's tried to get wealthy fans involved. But then the supporters' trust... Um, you know, has um, has ownership over clubs' image rights. So to an extent, it, it can prevent Luton being used for things that, that fans don't want Luton to be used for. I, I think there's a recognition at Luton that, that fans alone, you know, no, normal fans in inverted commas, can't provide the revenues that you need to, to get into the Premier League. So so th- they are an interesting exception. But you know, this idea of... of I, I guess to an extent... I. I I came at this almost from a wrong angle that I often get, get annoyed by the entitlement of fans and this idea of football without fans is nothing, which is kind of true, but it's also not really true because the most important thing in football is the game and it's the players. And the first football clubs were founded by players because they wanted to play. And what, what then happens through the 1870s and 1880s is that those clubs founded by players come to represent their local area. And that gives them this very, very complex relationship. And, you know, people replied to me um, pointing out that, that both Liverpool and Chelsea were founded because the people who owned the grounds needed something to to generate revenue, that they weren't founded out of any kind of civic good. They were founded purely for financial reasons. And that is absolutely true. Um, but pretty quickly, I mean, Liverpool founded what, early 1890s, Chelsea 1905. Pretty quickly, they had come to represent that bit of, of uh, South or West London and that, that bit of bit of Merseyside. Um, they, they did take on that sort of civic role. But what I think is interesting is that when when the league sort of drew up uh, the, the regulations that governed clubs, they stipulated that no dividends had, were, were capped at 7.5% and that uh, no director could be employed by the club or could draw a salary from the club, could make money from the club. So until 1981, when those regulations were, were taken away, English clubs were not there to make a profit. There was no point in making a profit. Yeah, any profit you made, you might as well reinvest because you couldn't take it out as a director. And so that, I think, is where you see very early on, there's this understanding on the part of the league, and the league obviously is the, the representation of all the clubs together. What they think they are is, is this club that has this civic role, partly to let people play, but also because people want to watch and they, they, they have a community role. And as with so much of this stuff in England, this disappears under Thatcher. And this is really hammered in 1983 uh, when there's a government report because yeah, football was falling apart in England at the time. Um, but 1983, 
there's a government report which which ends the practice of sharing gate receipts. So it used to be the case in the league, 25% of gate receipts would go to the away club, which just, you know, it, it tempers the advantage of the big clubs. You know, that yes, you have an advantage if you play at Old Trafford or Anfield or you know, a huge stadium, but not by as much as if you're, if you're not uh, sharing that out. I mean, yeah, we still have an FA Cup, it's still 50% split. Um, but but that was what let the big clubs sort of run away with things. Um, and then the other fact, the other key factor is is TV revenues. That previously, you know, and I'm absolutely not portraying the, the, the days of the local owners, 60s and 70s as a golden age. You know, football in England was falling apart at that time. But at least in theory, there was a sense that you had to appeal to your local fan base because the 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 the, the main revenue stream was people buying tickets, people coming through the gate. So if local people didn't want to watch your team, you had no money. Now that, it's still there to an extent. We saw during the pandemic or, or you know, the, the consequence of the pandemic was was a lot of clubs had financial difficulties. But with TV revenues becoming a bigger and bigger part of a, of, of, um, a club's budget, then that, that, that intrinsic link to the local community is, is slightly eroded. And, and one of the other features of that is you start to get a global fan base and then clubs I think do have a responsibility not merely to its local community but to that global community and that is something that I think is incredibly hard to reconcile This is the the weird thing Shane which I find like say and obviously there's the irony of being that Irish person but if you go I haven't been to Old Trafford but I think it's more or less the same thing you go into a cabbie in Liverpool is telling Mm -hmm. you well locals can't get a ticket and loads of the locals basically have season tickets which they're flogging off for profit to the day trippers and the association between that geezer who lives around the corner and wants to see his local team um, is, is, has become kind of obsolete because it's just gone way bigger than that and like I became a Liverpool fan by virtue of TV and because of the Irish and like I don't know if you've been to games in England but like yeah. this it, it, it looks it looks more like a, a load of kind of global you can see in the audience it's global day trippers rather than locals at a lot of clubs now yeah, and I guess that's something that, that the game's not going to get away from anytime no. soon. Like it's it's just going to get. Uh, not, I'm not going to use the word worse because, of course, people have every right to go and support a team in a different country if they want. If they want to, do, and I've I've gone over to matches in England myself. Do you know? So it's definitely something that's that's not going away. Definitely, yeah, I would encourage same as Johnny to encourage people to uh, to read Jonathan's piece in the Guardian that uh, even talking about the division between fans and clubs and how it's never been been as wide. Before I let you go briefly, Jonathan, we, we were having a debate on the show last week about um, Declan Rice and the price tag around Declan Rice. Yeah, let's talk about football, Jonathan. <laughs> let's talk about football. You know, but it was it was he worth the money? And 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 I get, it, it kind of led into the Mason Mount debate that maybe was Mason Mount a, a better value signing for the price? But I guess again, money doesn't really matter in football. It's all monopoly money to us sitting here um, but but is Declan Rice worth the money that um, that has been paid for him do you reckon no um, I find it really hard to work out what, what, what price does mean um, <laughs> and what players are worth um, is he overrated yeah, sorry he, I suppose it should be the question well does he make Arsenal better than they were yes I think he does is he potentially an exceptional footballer yes I think he is um does he fit straight into that Arsenal team? Yes, absolutely does. Would I be worried if City had signed him that the, the sort of monopoly position that English football seems to be moving towards with City winning five plus six, that that would be strengthened? Yeah, that would concern me. So I'm glad he's gone to Arsenal. I think he will make Arsenal better. Whether he's worth 90 million or 105 million, I, I just, these are just numbers. I don't know how you possibly judge that. I guess you compare him to, say, Enzo Fernandez and say, is he of his quality? And, and Fernandez was what 120 to Chelsea pay for him. Yeah, he was the only one. Um, so well, he's maybe similar. Maybe Fernandez just that that 
Fernandez's capacity to to sort of generate space from nowhere maybe just sets him slightly above. But but then you know it, it's it's a it's a different game when you're playing for for Benfica or for Argentina than if you're playing for West Ham. So uh, he's a really really good player. Whether whether that's a, is represented by eighty million or one hundred million or one hundred and twenty million. I don't know. And see, so much is dependent on how long they've got left in their contract. And see, a Mason Mount for 60 million compared to Declan Rice looks like good value, but of course he was gone last year of his contract. Mm. So that lowers the, the price tag. So I don't know. I, I think uh, there are exceptional cases. So I, you know, I think, for instance, when Neymar moved from Barcelona to PSG and more than doubled the world transfer record in 2017, that's a price you're looking at thinking that makes absolutely zero sense. There's a reason for this beyond the value of the player, um, but beyond that, I, I, I think you know um, a number is decided upon, and, and that's what it is. Yeah, it's a difficult one to think for for us football fans and, and, and reporters, I guess, to to fathom. Even uh, Jonathan, brilliant stuff as always. Thanks a million for hopping on. Cheers, thanks. Uh, How do Parisians think of PSG? Like, you know, it's, yeah. like, what, what does Neymar, Messi, and like, you know, in, fair enough, Mbappe is French, but what do they have to do with this project? And like, what, like, I've been to the old PSG in Parc de France years ago, and it was like you could feel it was it was of the city, Local. one club city, Parisians. Yeah, what? Like, I do wonder, like, what there is to that element or cohort among the fan base, obviously. Yeah, it will yeah. always be there. I'm sure there is, but it's uh, but it's changed. It's, it's and I do. It is kind of as you get older, like you you become a Catholic because you're brought up a Catholic, right? You become a Liverpool fan or a whatever fan because your brother told you this is what to do when you were eight years of age. You didn't know the difference, but then when you get to my age and you're forty, and you just you start looking at football clubs and the way Jonathan talks about them there and what it means and all the other problems in the world, and it's just like it just kind of becomes it less meaningful or something I don't know and, and especially when it's owned by like a petrol state yeah 100% <laughs> that's insane uh, yeah, we, we end up spending more time talking about non-football things now because, and it's not our fault it just is the way football is at the moment uh, for sure 9.17am on this uh, Tuesday morning's OTBM the sports breakfast show from off the ball going to be talking Gaelic football in just a second don't miss first though all the action in Rugby Daily today in your OTB podcast network bringing you everything you need to know about rugby get your favourite local restaurants delivered to your door with Deliveroo just open up the app, browse some great offers, take your pick and they'll take care of the rest. Deliveroo Food, we get it. Here are some highlights coming up on the OTP Podcast Network for you today. We've got the Football Pod, we've got the Monday Night Rugby and of course the News Round. After the break, Conleth Gilligan talking Gillick Football. You're listening to OTB AM. Approaching 20 past 9 on this Tuesday morning's OTB AM. We're going to take another look back now to the uh, weekend's All-Ireland Hurling, or sorry, football. Of course, quarterfinals just gone and uh, we kind of give a lot of love to Mayo and uh, I talked about Mayo yesterday a lot with Keith Higgins we give it wasn't much love it wasn't much love no. the love was for Dublin and Kerry I think but we're going to turn our attention maybe a little bit more love for Derry and, and Monaghan uh, former Derry forward Conneth Gilligan joining myself and Johnny on the line this morning Conneth how are things? Uh, things are good Shane hey Johnny how's it going Con? Uh, Derry Derry Conneth are, are like I guess it was one of those games where two t- two teams with similar styles between Derry and Cork uh, people expected Derry to get over the line and, and ultimately they did and I guess the scoreline would have been embellished a little bit more if McGuigan had put away that, that last minute penalty but um, certainly showed elements of, of a really really strong performance certainly didn't panic Derry No and I think this time last year had Derry have went to Krug Park playing poorly and Shane McGuigan not being to the fore they probably wouldn't have won so it just shows how much Derry have developed and, and also the fact that maybe in the last 36 months the fact that Derry supporters go to Crook Park and they don't put on a big performance, we win and we leave unhappy, is probably more signs of just how this Derry team is really developing. 
and it was Kelly, I think Kieran Mina made the point after the game as well um, I think he had t- so, it was a nerve touched by some reporters when they suggested Derry maybe when they get when they get to Croke Park aren't as impressive as they, as they maybe could be but he made the point as well that there was a swirling breeze in Croke Park maybe at the weekend that people mightn't have noticed it wasn't a day for, for flamboyant football so essentially Derry just had to get the job done and, and really they did from the very outset Paul Cassidy with some of the points he was kicking were were very very impressive so a lot of positives I think for, for Mina to take from it yeah, big time. Like there was seven different scores for Derry, and you know, in recent times that may have been similar, but it was all about people getting one point. Whereas Casty got two points, you know, and even within that, Rogers comes up with two points in a game he's quiet in, but he really comes to the fore at the end. So I think Derry will be very happy getting into a semi-final, having played poorly because last year against Clare they shot the lights out and they probably put themselves up on a pedestal going into the Galway game. Whereas this game everybody will be talking about Kerry and how devastating their performance was. So I think Derry are probably in a really good place going into this. Have they any sort of chance, Conlon? Have they any sort of chance? Yeah, look, I absolutely think they have. Obviously, there was a nerve struck with Kieran. Um, the criticism probably in the last two games with Derry and Croke Park being Galway and the Dublin final so they have to keep it tight they mm. can't let Kerry away from them but the longer it stays tight the more difficult it becomes for Kerry and this isn't a game that Kerry will relish because Derry plays a style in which the kicking game of Kerry won't be as effective That's the thing as well because heading into the, the kerry Tyrone match I think a lot of people Connacht, were talking about that Tyrone midfield Kennedy and Kilpatrick and how dominant they've been across the year and uh, one of if not the best midfield partnerships in the country but then you have what O'Connor and Barry did uh, in that Kerry midfield and just, I guess, bring a performance that not a lot of people expected. It'll be similar in that Kerry-Derry game because they're going to be up against it again, the Kerry midfield, when you look at Glass and Rogers, Again, arguably, probably one of the top, certainly two or three midfield partnerships in the country. Yeah, look, and there has been a number of them. Like I thought Jim and O'Connor and Jack Barry were both exceptional. I was one of those people who expected Kennedy and Kilpatrick to lord that, but Kerry were clever. They didn't let a midfield battle break out because they just conceded the kickouts to Jerome, which took one of the strengths, which is Morgan's boom and kick out out of it. So um, Kerry probably, their ego didn't get in the way. They decided, yeah, look, we might not be as good early as Jerome here. But look, we'll, we'll hit them high and they put that first line of four across the 45, they have another line of four across the 65 and in a game where we were expecting Tyrone to be the aggressors, it was actually Kerry who done that and, and I suppose that's not something we would have expected from this Kerry team and it was probably set up like Shawnee O'Shea, uh, probably Paddy Clifford, you know, all mm. day was at it and that's something that we weren't expecting but like, where Kerry are strong, where they've legs, you know, the Lexi Gavin White I thought was exceptional but Derry have you know, Paul Castier, the Ethan Doherty there, they'll not be found wanting in that stake. So, like, I think Derry match up really well. I, I, I can't for the life of me, Conlon, see how this works for Derry now. Just because, like, Kerry have, say if they have a back seven, really, really unbelievably tigerish in the tackle. So, th- there's no easy outlet for Derry. And I thought Derry defensively actually weren't great at times against Cork. I thought Cork got in for reasonable goal chances that better teams would have gotten at least points from. So, do do do... Do Derry go long from their kickouts, or do they basically try to have a possession game and bleed the life out of Kerry having the ball just to, to neutralise it? Or how do they win this game? I, I I just can't see it on last weekend. Yeah, well, it'll depend on what Kerry do. You know, will Kerry go after Derry's kickouts, or will they decide, look, it worked against Trump, we'll do it again? Mm. If they give Derry possession, the longer the game stays in and around a draw, 
the more Derry will believe, the more they'll live into it. It's really been the games where they've went behind, where things have had to change. But I think over the last season, Derry's attacking plan platform has really improved and increased. Last year, they were very one-dimensional with Shane McGuigan, but this year, they're getting 13, 14 bodies right inside the 45, and they're holding possession. And I agree with you, defensively, wasn't their best day. They coughed up balls in the tackle on Sunday, which is very uncharacteristic. Like, I can see them going back to that. They'll want to really control the tempo of this game. They'll move it out quick. They'll get two men up either side. They'll get four inside the 20. They'll try and keep the D, the D clear so that the legs of your, your Paul Castys can break through, your Brenton Rogers, you know, your Connor McCluskeys. And, you know, they have pace. We're carrying pace as well. So I don't think physically Derry will be found wanting. It'll be whether David Clifford can have one of the days like last week or whether it is one of these days where he just shoots the lights out. A couple of things just to, to, to put to you, Conleth, uh, maybe to counter Johnny's point as to maybe not being able to make an argument for Derry, like Oren Lynch is brilliant and, and when he comes out with the ball like I think his distribution from hand if you look at Ethan Rafferty from Armagh sometimes there are Hollywood passes that maybe give Monon opportunities to score points. Oren Lynch seems to be more composed when he comes out with the ball Often his passes from the hand lead to chances for Derry and he rarely gives the ball away. There's also the reaction to the Cork goal as well because that, that goal from Maguire brings Cork immediately back into the game. But Derry didn't panic. Um, that word again, panic, like Conor Doherty scores the goal basically immediately after. So Kerry or Derry managed to kind of null that, 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 that mini little storm from, from Cork. And there's also, Conor, and this is probably the point I want to put to you, um, and Mina kind of mentioned it as well after the match, like the reaction to Galway beating Derry in the semi-final last year, I feel like a lot of Derry players certainly uh, will, will still feel that reaction because they didn't show up on the day and there were a lot of things said about Derry in, 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 in the wake of that game that they just can't, you know, like they can't play in Croke Park, they can't get beyond a semi-final or whatever else. So they will, I, I'd imagine, be using that as fuel for this Kerry match. No, look, they will take every avenue and I think it probably is unfair you know, because they come up against Dublin in Crook Park in a final where they were missing, you know, two of their three full back line. McAvoy didn't play, Chrissy McKeague didn't play, who are pivotal to what Derry do. So the Dublin game, and they, they kept Dublin to seven points. Yes, they conceded goals, but like, was that really anything to worry about? Again, Galway, they played Galway, who are probably one of the most formed teams last year. So I think it's unfair to say they can't play in Crook Park. I think when you look at how much football they've played. You know, Glenn obviously were the kick of a ball last year from winning the All-Ireland Club. So I think, I think there's loads of stuff. And in Shane McGuigan, up until last weekend, he loved Group Park. I don't see Shane McGuigan being as quiet again, but this Kerry defence has been very, very mean. And I think mm. if Derry are to pull off this win, like I think they're going to need Shane McGuigan, Connor Glass, Rogers, you know, Chrissy McKeague to have the games of their lives. That's just the reality of where Kerry are. Reigning All-Ireland champions, they've really struggled a wee bit but they've started to hit a wee bit of form now so um, but like I still would make a case for Derry it will be difficult they will have to get everything right but I still think that they're in a good place because like they're back to back Ulster champions again no mean feat you know, they needed to get promotion they needed to beat Dublin and Celtic Park they needed to beat Cork playing poorly like everything they've had to do they have done and yeah it's been quiet it's been under the radar but that'll not bother them one bit how do you expect Derry to, to marshal David Clifford? I know there can be sometimes too much focus put on, on Clifford when you look at the rest of Kerry's forward line and there are, are of course, other dangers there. Like, Is it someone like a, 
uh, Chrissy McKay, I know Chrissy's 33, but he's still he's still brilliant and someone who just I guess is willing to forego his own game to to take someone else out of the game. Or do you give it to someone else in that dairy back line? Might yeah, love. sorry, I just lost a wee bit of that, Shane. But yeah, just to take on that point, I think you were making. It's not enough for Chrissy McKeague on his own. Mm. You know, like you have to expect, accept that David Clifford is going to kick half a dozen points playing poorly. <laughs> you know, but it's trying to limit that and not overly like because Tyrone focused on on David Clifford, but it was Shawnee O'Shea who kicks one five. Um, you know, Jim O'Connor kicks one two. Uh, that's the problem. You can shut down one of the Cliffords, and then somebody else comes to the fore. So I think defensively it will have to be a team game. They will have to cut down all the spaces. They can't give cheap opportunities and you can't give goals. But like like you had to go back to 2016 from the last time Kerry scored two goals in Group Park in the Championship. So Kerry having them in his free scoring in front of goal you know, as probably last weekend suggested. So like I think Derry will keep it tight. I don't think they'll be ball to kick. Kerry are going to have to run ball, but they'll be equally comfortable there. But um, Chrissy McGeeg's as good a player mark as possible. But if he hits form, like there really is no marking off me, just is that good. Yeah, looking forward to these two semi-finals. They're going to have to be over defensive, aren't they? Like, really, they have to. They have to. So you're not. You can't go anywhere near. Like, Tyrone were probably too actually, you know, too too aggressive in the way they played. In the sense that let's let's go a little bit. I I would have thought Derry are going to have to make this a horrible horrible game and try to hold on to the ball and smother Kerry out of it because I don't see any other way. But maybe I'm wrong. Possibly before we let you go, Connaught, and hopefully the line holds up there. But um, uh, the Monaghan Armagh game, I know you were covering that one as well. Just pure and utter drama. Seventeen penalties scored out of twenty. Uh, Armagh possibly played into Monaghan's hands with the way they said, said about it but I guess those two clutch moments from Reno O'Neill and Conor McManus were, were the talking points really just pure and utter cool calm and collective from the, from the pair of them Yeah look the, the game itself um, it, it, it probably was a better game when you were there mm. uh, it didn't probably look great on TV <laughs> but there was excitement it was a really tough tactical battle you know the matchups all those things that people who like modern football got out of that game but in contrast, you know, Gary Moen, um, like there was so many big performances. McCarthy again is an all-star form. Like that move after the half-time and the true uh, Monaghan match to bring McCarthy to wing half back has been inspired. And like I think Monaghan deserves serious credit. It's been a tough year, but like they're there now. They've beaten Dublin before in really important games, and while everybody will be talking up a Kerry Dublin final. You know, I think Monaghan and Derry both have real big says in it, but you know, credit to Monaghan. I think what Vinnie Curry and, and his brother Martin have done there have been incredible. Yeah, you've whetted my appetite. That's why I love getting you on, Conleth. You'll, you'll always give me a little sliver of hope. That's that's all what I want—a sliver of hope is all we need. Monaghan Derry final to look forward to. We'll we'll, we'll, we'll touch base before then, no doubt. Uh, Conleth, great stuff as always. Thanks for hopping on. Brilliant. Thanks. Thanks. Conor Gilligan there former Derry forward uh, people who like modern football that's an interesting uh, people who like five, interesting five words because like it's uh, I think it's a really spiritual debate at the moment that we got to earlier on in the show and we're ending yeah. on that people who like modern football there's an awful lot to like about it yeah and look at that point you made earlier would you take a neutral to a match and, and I think I would like I'd take a neutral to Man in Dublin or to Derry Kerry those games could go either way you know Monaghan might have to play negatively to beat Dublin Derry might have to play negatively to beat Kerry but at the end of the day that's just but I think the drama will still be there. Do you know, if the games are tight heading down the stretch, and I hope both games are, just for, from a spectacle perspective. Um, I think I think the problem, Shane, is that like in games like 
that are billed as these like close games, like the, main, the two main games that we got at the weekend, mm. when they're utterly decided before the final quarter, like almost early in the second half, that's the deflating bit where the crowd becomes almost disengaged, yeah. and you know the Kerry fans almost stop cheering because it's like, well, we don't want to, you know, um, kick someone on the ground here. And the same the Mayo, like I think football when 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 it's when it's played to the extent that the the good team is so dominant, is hard to watch. But like. I'm like you, like the Monaghan, the Monaghan victory at the weekend, the way that game went for me is actually, if you're there, that's engrossing because yeah. there's so much going on and it's still, the, it's still right. If you don't like the way this game is played, you come and tell me how to win it because this is to me the optimum way that Monaghan have to win this game. Yeah, and that's, that's what it's all about, getting over the line essentially. And the skill, look, skill levels, skill yeah. levels are amazing at times. Look at, look at Conor McManus. Like. Yeah, some of the stuff that was, that was happening was like even when he winning the free and kicking over the free from the, under the Hogan stand it, with his first touch, I think. And if you were under the, if you were in the Hogan when, David Clifford does that. Oh. Even in a dead rubber game at this stage, you're like, I hear. Yeah, mad stuff. You know, and, and I, I still think the skill level, some of Dublin's kicking in the second half. Yeah. It's insane. Like, 100%. insane. And don't don't completely knock the game when all this is happening. Like. Look, I, I, I sat down to watch the Dublin Mayo game, hope, like, nearly the popcorn in my hands, hoping for an absolute spectacle in the first half, didn't disappoint. Did, but, yeah. Yeah, but then it kind of pulled away and petered out, of course. And, and presumably, majority of Kerry and Tyrone fans were probably halfway home by the time Monaghan and Armagh threw in mm. do you know that a lot of them wouldn't have maybe bothered staying around for the second game I'm sure a lot of them did as well but uh, yeah from a spectacle perspective some of the couple of the games that we expected to be tied or maybe just not like, delivering it's funny like briefly I have an article in the in the Hurling programme Sunday and like I can't envisage anything but a very very close games there where mm. I could see two whitewashes in the football semi-finals with all due respect no, I could no. see both Kerry and Dublin winning by a lot of pundits will, will like, because that, if, yeah. if it starts in a way that if Kerry go four or five points up done mm. absolutely done if Dublin go four point five points up first half done it could be obliterated because yeah. Monaghan have to come out of their shell Derry have to come out of their shell that's not going to happen in the Hurling yeah and I think I think the bookies have it like a three point spread for Kerry to beat Derry and six three points and six, maybe yeah. for, which is interesting probably. I think Dublin I think Kerry will win by closer to ten than three but right. um, I mean the bookies are more accurate than me yeah remains to be seen Johnny great stuff this morning thanks, thanks for popping in as always uh, on tomorrow's OTBM we will have the Kilkenny legend Tommy Welch live in studio no less Alan Quinlan will discuss the under-20s game against Fiji we'll have Stacey Flood and we'll have Jason Quigley as well uh, with us right now though Matt Williams from last night's show have a terrific Tuesday OTB AM The Sports Breakfast Show from Off the Ball